just to my left over here, I have a drum kit. When I say something really loud, all the cymbals shimmer a little bit. <laughs> That's just cool. And so I'll sometimes catch myself like laughing or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, it's ringing out over there for a lot longer than it should. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So do we want to dive in? Dive in. Which I thought was hilarious, by the way. Your little let's dive in. I like to have a something and I like that something to be different every time. So yes, yes, I know. I said I wanted to talk about New Year's resolutions, but really I was thinking more like podcast, you know, maybe you throw in a personal thing or whatever, but you know, this is our f- first time hitting a new year together on this podcast. Yeah, I, I didn't prepare anything. Though I spent the last couple of days thinking about it and thinking maybe I should prepare something. And then also (laughs) thinking, well, if you're going to do resolutions, what's something else I could do? One of the things I like is predictions. Uh Uh-huh. But then I couldn't think of anything that would be fun to predict. So. Yeah, I I did enjoy the the Oxide and Friends podcast where they kind of do this like live podcast sort of thing. They did a a prediction episode and they did one, five, and ten year. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And they actually like revisited predictions that they had done like 10 years before. Oh, wow. Which was kind of fun to to look at. There was ones like right before the iPhone. And like at first it was like before it was announced and it sounded like uh, Brian Cantrell had predicted exactly what Apple was going to do. But then the last sentence in his prediction, and it's going to be a big flop. Yeah, I, I, am not sure I'm ready to make predictions. Uh, as much as you didn't prepare for, you know, a New Year's resolution, I feel like making a prediction is even something more I would want to prepare for. But I do think that would be a fun thing to do. Um, you know, future of coding related one, five, ten predictions might be a fun little thing to do. Yeah. Well, give us your resolutions, and then, and then I might improvise based on that. Yeah, I mean, I, okay, so, you know, I have some, like, personal things. Like, I, I posted on on, on a, a bird website that, you know, I know I'm not supposed to post on, or I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I love, like, Mastodon's been cool. I don't know. Whatever. Not even going to get into that. But I did post some, and, like, the one that I think is the most fun for me, for a personal one, was just I want to use, I want to be spending 10% of my time in an editor I built myself. This has really been something that's kind of been like on my mind a lot of just like using my own tools and what tool I use the most is definitely my editor, right? And I, I use VS Code mostly um, with a smattering of, of Sublime Text and a smattering of Emacs, but I'm never happy with any of them. And so I really want to be able to spend the time, like dedicate the time in my own tool and customize it exactly the way I want what kind of thing do you want this editor to help you do that your current tooling doesn't help you with? There's two things that I don't like about current editors that I want to address. And only if I got both of these would I feel good about it, right? So the first is just like code organization. Files are kind of like awkward. And like there's either really big files or really small files and jumping between them is really like annoying. Almost always I'm like working on some small subset of code that I care about and I know what that is. But then sometimes I like venture off and go, you know, read some other code and then come back to that small subset. And I just, I'm one of those people who have like a hundred tabs open at a time. Right. And I just like, I have files open everywhere. Like I think at the end of a work day, I'll often have like, 
uh, like three VS code instances and then like 14 sublime text instances that I opened up. Cause they're like so much cheaper to open than a VS code one. And like, they're like scattered around and I have like random temp files and copy and paste that I put somewhere and log file. Like it's a mess. Right. And like some of this is me and I, I watch people who are, you know, much more organized than myself and they don't get into this mess, but I, I can't not do that. Like I need to have those like stacks of different thoughts going on and places to put them. So like that's criteria number one for me is I want like something better for managing that, that will let me accrue all that mess and maybe sometimes keep it around, but also like tuck it away when I don't want it. Right. Uh, and then the other thing that I really want is like, I, I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast. I can't visualize things in my head. I have aphantasia. But like when I'm doing work, I often need to visualize things and I often have to build these like external tools to visualize stuff. And I want that in my editor. I want to be able to take a bunch of data that I have going on, whether it's like live code or like I've dumped it out to a file or whatever. And I want to like shape it and mold it and visualize it right then and there in my editor. And I don't want this to be tied to like a programming system. Like I want to be able to do this in like any language or any, any little bit, you know, ad hoc coding and have some visualizations going on. And so I want my editor to expose that sort of like visual layer. Um, and that those two are kind of the main things that I, I want to explore and do and have an editor that does. And I, I just don't see anything that's doing those two things at all. Those two things have an interesting intersection because when you think about, oh, I want to bring in visualizations or snippets of code or little like side bits like when you're cooking, right, you might be prepping some ingredients long before they're needed and you have them kind of off to the side of the cutting board or you have the little bits that you trim off of, mm -hmm. you know, whatever vegetables you're preparing or whatever. There's like lots of little secondary bits around whatever the main thing you're working on at the moment is. And in a spatial metaphor, you can just kind of put it over there mm -hmm. and it, there's, a, there's a there you can put it over to. But with file-centric programming where you have like, I've got this file open and that file open, whatever, whenever you want to put one of those little bits somewhere, you're sort of forced to commit yourself to, well, which file am I putting it in? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you've got thoughts about, you know, when you are bringing those bits in, are they being treated as this is now belonging to a particular source file that I've got open. And so if I save that file, let's save those bits with it. Or is there some other kind of like space within which these things can come together that's organized separately from just which file is open in which buffer? Yeah, I think it's going to definitely have to be both there, right? Like I want to be able to open files because I want this to be like a practical thing, not a walled garden, right? Like I want this to be, I can open up any code base in my editor and productively work on it. And so I'll be able to open up a file and then be like, oh, all I really want is this function out of it and like get rid of that file buffer altogether. Like I don't want to see it. I just want to see this function. And then when I save it, it would go back to the, the underlying file. But I do want like, things that persist in my editor that I don't have to think about their location, but also that I can like query and bring up later. So I'm definitely going to have to have like a database 
in my editor, right? Like I think that's going to be a, a crucial feature if I want all these little bits to be able to be around and persist across sessions. That's the other thing that I hate is like I have to decide like, like I'll actually like force quit Sublime because Sublime's really good at like bringing back up the old things I had. Whereas if I like quit it properly, it's like, where do you want to save this? I'm like, I don't. So I'll just like force quit Sublime just so it like persists it, but it cleans up my desktop, right? Like... <laughs> which is such a like silly workaround uh, that I, I just feel like I shouldn't have to do, right? Like just keep that over there. And if I want to get rid of it, I'll, I'll get rid of it. We have so much disk space and memory and et cetera. Uh, so I, I think I have to have both in order for this to really work with the chaotic flow that I have. I can't help but rabbit hole on this. It's funny no, that I'm I'm glad I want I want this feedback. That's why I mentioned it. No, 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 no. I'm not rabbit holing on that. <laughs> rabbit oh, okay. holing on it's it's <laughs> like one of those you know evolutionary processes, or maybe people would say like, oh yeah, responding to the needs of the market or whatever uh, theory of how things work you want to justify. Uh-huh. It's funny that going through the 90s and the early 2000s where if a program crashed as programs frequently did that meant you would lose work or if something bad happened in the middle of a save that would mean you'd lose that file it created this environment where there was a lot of pressure to do atomic saves so your new save can't clobber your old save and you end up with a zero byte file or have um, you know, an interval where every so often, every certain number of edit actions or every certain amount of time, you save a backup copy somewhere in some temp directory so that if you do have to quit without saving, there's a recent file you can restore to when you load back up. And mm-hmm. it's funny that like every app that was used in a professional context had to implement that itself so like ableton live does it one way 3d studio max does it one way final cut does it one way and then eventually the operating systems started to add support for that so there's like resume and autosave and versions on mac and then there's whatever windows and linux do that i don't know because i don't use them um but presumably they do something and so there's like We've gotten to the point now where it's like the the, forcing the app to force quit, like, you know, kill nine, sig term, whatever, like just go the away used to be a recipe for data loss and is now a recipe for better state restoration than a normal quit. I, I find that delightful. And it's, I, I see just to go slightly deeper into a side branch of this rabbit hole. I see a new thing starting to happen, which is programs that don't let you save because their automatic state preservation is so constant. It's like every single thing that happens is saved, but they have really rich facilities for undo and redo and whatever within the program. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking like Final Cut, for instance, Final Cut nowadays, you can't save. You're working on your video, you're doing your edit, whatever. And when you're done, you just quit. And it doesn't matter if you quit normally, you crash, you're never asked, do you want to save? You're never asked, you know, this is a new project and you need to pick somewhere where those files are going to live. That just never happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's almost like we're designing, and I guess this is maybe a reaction to the Google doxification of everything, where it's like, what are even files anymore? Let's make the file system less of a thing. And so don't make people think about files. Don't make people think about saving. Yeah, I don't know. It's 
it's cool that your editor <laughs> is going to be yet another crack at this. Like, hey, files are useful sometimes, but annoying other times. How do we make it so that working with them is nice, uh, which means you know, you still work with them. You're not making files disappear a la Google Docs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, how do you make it so that when you don't want to deal with files, you don't have to deal with files? Yeah, and and the thing that I am making as a definitive criteria is it only has to work for me. Mm -hmm. I, 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 like, I don't really, this isn't me trying to go make a product, right? And so, like, I'll probably stumble upon some abstraction between files and not files that it's going to be like, a little janky, a little not polished, but like as long as it fits the way I think about it, I'm going to be good with it. And like, cool, it would be great if like I built something good enough that someone else wants to use it, but you know, it's an anti-goal for me, right? Like I, I want to intentionally, like I have to stop myself from thinking, all right, how can I make this production ready or, you know, whatever. It's like, no, as long as I am using it and enjoying using it, it's good. And so like I've done a little explorations, like uh, some live code. Uh, I, I've used WASM right now. It's just a, a fun way of doing extensions that I can do like hot reloading for and keep state around. Uh, even through the hot reload, which has been nice. Um, and it gives me a way, like, I could, like, interrupt things and make sure I hit frame times. Like, I, it needs to be... The other thing that I care about is just performance here. Because, like, I can do a lot of cool stuff in Emacs with Clojure, but, wow, is it just awful performance. And it just feels so bad whenever I'm, like, trying to... If I look at, like, any more than, like, three megabytes of data, it's, like, just at a crawl, you know? So, um yeah, it's been really a fun, like it's very early stages. And I had some like exploration on my like personal site where I made one before uh, an editor in Rust and did kind of a canvasy thing. And that's, it's going to follow on from that. You know, I do think it'll probably take the form of kind of a canvas thing because that spatial metaphor ju does just work for like random little bits, right? And that's how I did math in school. Uh, they always wanted you to like, I had one teacher who finally, like in elementary school, taught me this way of formulating things, which I liked so much better. It used to be like, you have your sheet of paper and you have to work on your problem and you'd like put one and circle it and then you'd write and then like two and circle it and write the problem there. But my paper would just become a mess if I did that and teachers kept like complaining about not being able to find my answers. So instead, I put my answers on the left-hand margin and just like labeled one, two, three, four, five. Here's all my answers. And then the middle of the page was just like, random scratch things that I did anywhere, right? Uh, and that worked for me so much better. <laughs> like, trying to keep it organized just made me not be able to think as well. So that's kind of the, the, the same idea here. I want that, but for my editor. Yeah, I think this, uh, I think this is, the, for the editor, it is really fun just to think about these problems and to kind of just have something that you can mold and fit to yourself. And so, yeah, I just... You know, I, I I have been really enjoying it. I've tried to make my code in general more personal. You know, I've kind of had this like, oh, well, there's all these like style guides and standards and like I have to do all this stuff for work and I have to make sure my code's comprehensible for other people and like don't put too many personal comments in there because that's like unprofessional or something. Just like having very personal code that I can write whatever I want, however I want and change it has just been really freeing and fun. So uh, definitely something I recommend people to do. Like make your code even at work more personal. I have the luxury of 
working at a company for a very long time and having been one of a few or the only programmer for much of that time. And so I have this whole ecosystem of like, oh, we have our own way of doing dependency management and, and you know, code loading and modules. And we have our own house style and we have our own way of using, you know, all of the things where it's like, oh, there's a standard way that everybody does it just because it's easy to learn and easy to bring new people into. It's like, no, we don't, we don't have to worry about that. If there's some pain about using, you know, JavaScript modules or require.js or whatever, don't use it. Write our own thing that, that scratches our own itches. And so we are... We're a, a, a team of one or two or three full of our own back-scratching machines that are very comfortable to sit in if you are shaped like we are. Every time you tell me about that, I have, like, the dual reaction of, like, that sounds wonderful and that sounds absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah, it would be awful to join the... Uh, and it is scary when when a new person comes in and they say, what the hell are you doing? Um, but people who get to be here for a while get to go, wait, I can make it whatever I want? Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's actually very nice. Okay. Yeah. So we've talked about my personal things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We got we to talk about something for you and the, and the podcast. And the podcast. The podcast gets to make resolutions. Okay. Cool. Yeah, the podcast itself is going to make some resolutions. All right. That'll be... I expect now I've editor Ivan to put in a voice of a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, there goes two hours of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to increase compression, uh, a.k.a. lose some weight. <laughs> No, our episodes are actually pretty heavy. I don't know if any of the listeners care about this, but I ship them in stereo, which is rare. And I also do not a super high bit rate, but a higher bit rate than other people. So I'm always self-conscious <laughs> when I go to do the compression. I'm like, wow, it's a, it's a two hour recording, two and a half hour recording, but it is 300 megabytes. That is a lot for putting on somebody's uh, phone. So it's fine. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's fine. Um, Anyways, I I did think of a resolution, and it's uh, 1920 by 10. No, um, it's <laughs> have to make that joke every year. It's mandatory as a programmer. Um, I I want to learn how to write graphics code on the GPU this year. That's what I want to do. Nice, because I've done a little tiny bit of that in the past. I've written a little bit of WebGL, mm-hmm. um, but I've never gotten good enough at it that I would turn to it to use in anger on a serious kind of project. And this year I've got some work stuff where I will need to ship some real-time 3D stuff in the browser for work, so I have an excuse to learn it for that. Nice. And then if I want to do more visual programming kind of stuff, one of the performance bottlenecks or the performance bottleneck that I ran into with Hest when I was working on that was just rendering. And if I ran the programming model without rendering, it would do millions of operations per second. And if I ran it with rendering, it would do tens of thousands of operations per second. And part of Hest being able to, you know, run super fast and run in super slow motion, jumping way up and down scales of time, um, means that it needs to be able to go pretty fast when you crank the speed slider all the way up and the faster it can go, the better. Um, and so if, if rendering was the big bottleneck there, I want to find ways to get rid of that. So I think learning how to put code that I write on the GPU for great good is my, 
my, I would like to do that this year after many years and, uh, you know, background backstory. I've spent many years telling myself, I'm going to learn how to write some code on the GPU. And so now I am publicly committing myself to the goal of learning how to write some code on the GPU and, and, and actually, and you have your, uh, use it for 10% of your programming kind of mm -hmm. benchmark. I think my, my specific goal will be, and I will actually like ship something that other people who don't know me by name will see and use that runs code on their GPUs. That'll be my like, I will have succeeded at this goal if I run some code on other people's GPUs. There's my, you know, if I, if I live in their GPUs rent free, then, <laughs> then I will have achieved my, my resolution this year. Nice. So do you want to, do you want to talk about podcast resolutions or no, I, I didn't get oh, that. Um, I don't have anything. Do you have anything? I got an easy low ball one uh, resolution that we could talk about if, uh, if we want to have this just, and it shouldn't take too long a conversation. Sure. Sure. Go so, for it. Cool. Yeah. So the thing that I've been thinking about with the podcast is I've really loved the papers that we're doing, but they're all papers that I have personally read before this podcast. I know that maybe you haven't uh, read all of them. Yeah, about half of them. Yeah. Uh, and so I would love for this year just to kind of explore some weirder papers that maybe aren't kind of in that, like, you know, the canon, right? Like all of these things have been kind of canonical. They're kind of known. I would love to kind of just explore some weird papers on the edges, even if they don't end up being papers that like we personally loved, right? That's the risk we take, right? That's why I've chosen like a bunch of papers that are kind of classics, right? We kind of chose them together, but I've kind of, you know, had a big list mm -hmm. uh, of papers to pull from. So I really want to like kind of branch out and do some weirder stuff. Uh, yes, we'll keep coming back to the classics. Like there's still things that we haven't covered that we need to cover, like Ted Nelson or something, right? Like, yeah. but I just, I want to kind of branch out and just see, you know, what it's like to go still future of coding related. It's not like we're going to change this to a literature podcast or something. Uh, but a little bit on the, the, the fringier side than what we've done. I have been threatening Jimmy with this for a while, and so I'm now going to publicly threaten Jimmy with this. I want to do some <laughs> things that aren't papers. So I would like yeah, to review yeah. some things or discuss some things or, or reflect on some things that aren't a paper, maybe aren't even written, maybe aren't even, you know, the sort of thing that one would normally do an analysis of, but that might get us to think different kinds of thoughts about what programming could be or what we could do as programmers or who the hell knows. Because um, I think that's my role here is to, is to push in uncomfortable directions. That's what I... I was I was put on this digital earth to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, I think, you know, the obvious things are like some videos or something. But, uh, you know, I'm... I'm down for whatever. We can go read a, a science fiction book. I know that's a, still a text, but that's very far away from this. We could go watch a movie. I, you know, I, I, I like the conversations, mm -hmm. but what I, what I like about having a text, and for me, a text just means is very like broad here. Like a movie could be a text, right? A work, yeah. A work, yeah. I, I want to work just because I think it grounds the conversation and it also forces us not to just fall back on our habits. Yeah. Right? Like we have some other thing that's kind of pushing us along and making us talk about topics we might not naturally mm -hmm. talk about. Mm -hmm. 
And that's what I, I, that's what I really like about it. So as long as we have that element and we don't always have to, you know, we could do a topic, a topical show, but I like having that, the, the intrusion of the text that kind of forces us to, to wrestle with it rather than just kind of repeat the same things that we might generally talk about if it was just a chit chat show. Yeah, I definitely need something to stop me from being a visual programming on every episode because <laughs> that's definitely not what I've been doing with with all of our papers so far is repeating my same old tire talking points about visual programming. And this paper will not give you any no. chance. No, there's not going to be any. So I don't think we've mentioned uh, in the audio here what we're what we're reading today, but I think this is a good segue into it. Let's do it. I, I actually. I've got an even well you, you set it up and then I've got a, a second a second segue okay we're gonna do a double segue today um a two-wheeled segue yeah um yeah okay so we're we're reading uh, uh no silver bullet here uh essence and accident in software engineering never really think about the subtitle by uh Frederick Brooks so this is a pretty classic paper by Fred Brooks, who also wrote The Mythical Man Month, uh, the book and the shorter chapter inside of The Mythical Man Month. Uh, you know, the idea of like adding a, a person to an already late project, adding people to an already late project makes it even later, right? We kind of all know this uh, kind of general wisdom. I think No Silver Bullet is still pretty popular, but maybe not as well known. Uh, we can we can give the, the summary here, but I, you know, like the little... Uh, abstract, I guess, but I, I, you had a segue and now I'm like, yeah, so here's my, here's my second segue, right? So the, so uh-huh. no silver bullet essence and accident in software engineering. We'll come back to that. And it begins with a little kind of italicized kind of pull quote or mm-hmm. something where it says there is no single development in either technology or management technique, which by itself promises even one order of magnitude improvement within a decade in productivity, in reliability, in simplicity. So to summarize, kind of this this pull quote, but also the entire point of this paper is that Fred in 1986, when this was written, is saying there's not going to be any single thing that we're going to come up with that will give us an order of magnitude, and so he means times 10, improvement in the way that we make software in terms of our productivity, in terms of the quality of that software, that there's not going to be any one silver bullet kind of thing that gives us that 10x improvement within a decade. So it's saying there's not going to be a 10x improvement within a decade. And what I like about that the second segue here is that this is him making a 10-year prediction. And throughout <laughs> this point. paper, he's got some things that are like, oh, you know, is this a promising thing? Well, when we look back on how it's gone in the past over the last little while, it hasn't been very promising, but maybe in a longer term, it will be promising. Or here's a thing that hasn't been tested yet that's a new idea that when we think about it, it doesn't seem like it's going to have any promise in the near term or any promise, no matter how long you give it. So he's making lots of predictions about near term futures, far term futures. And I enjoyed that framing. And, and, and I will say just right off the bat, the first time I read this paper, which was a long time ago, I liked it. The second time I read it, I hated it. This is now my third time reading it. We'll get to the verdict when we get to the verdict. But one thing that helped me in thinking about this this time is 
uh, and I'm going to challenge us to do this as we go through it, is to actually think about this paper with two different perspectives. One perspective is going to be taking what he says as he's talking about 10 years and a 10x improvement, like using his actual framing to reflect on the things that he said. And that one is less interesting because it was written in 86. And so he's making predictions for what's going to come true by 96. So this is in the past already. We can kind of evaluate, did he get it right? Did he get it wrong? Did his predictions come true or not? Um, But the other way that I want to think about it is ignoring those self-imposed limits that he put in this paper, ignoring the 10x improvement and ignoring the decade timescale and thinking instead about which of these things that he's talking about in the time since 1986, how many of them have come true, but it took longer than a decade to make a 10x improvement come about, which things did make improvements, but they weren't 10x. Which other things did he not think about that brought us 10x improvements? Which other things did he not think about at all that are we see them now when we don't know how they played out and will they give us 10x improvements or whatever scale of improvement? And just sort of taking the spirit of the paper and thinking, you know, with that spirit in mind, where do we see this sort of framework of thinking that he's putting forward here um, happening in the world? What kind of uh, predictions of our own do we want to make? Or what kind of reflections on recent trends look like they will pay off and which ones don't? And sort of doing no silver bullet again ourselves here now, as opposed to Fred 1986. Um, So those are the two frames. Take it literally and then take it spiritually and and run with it in our own directions. And I think it's important to distinguish them. Because a lot of the, the second time I read this, when I sort of hate read it, a lot of the things I hated about it were things where I was ignoring that framing. And when I've read it now with that framing very front of mind of, you know, he's only talking about a decade, he's talking about one idea at a time, and he's talking about a 10x improvement. So if something takes six months to build, he's talking about it in you know, uh, one tenth of six months. I, I, I should have said 10 months and then reduced to one month. That would make <laughs> math easier. Uh, so if something would take 10 months to do, will a single Im- advancement give us one month turnaround on that 10 month project? That's a 10 X improvement of the sort he's talking about. I think the other thing that's kind of, I think never explicitly stated exactly in this this paper, but that I always had a tension with, he almost seemed to kind of jump between them, is what what's the scale of improvement we're talking about? Not in terms of the magnitude of the improvement, but at what scale is the improvement happening? So is it the industry as a whole? Is it a particular business? Is it an individual? Is it a team? Like, you know, because I can think of things that might make me 10x more productive, right? A singular thing that could make me 10x more productive. But I, it doesn't seem like that's the kind of thing he's talking about. He seems mostly, I think, like I said, I don't think he's completely consistent about this, but to talk about the industry as a whole becoming 10x more productive, right? Or at the very least, like a big business within the industry, like a big software firm, yeah. like an IBM yeah. or something like that. Would would all teams across IBM be 10x more productive if they adopted some given methodology? Yeah, it's got to be kind of this uh, generalized thing that at least could be applied, even if it wasn't applied equally. It could be applied to everyone and everyone would benefit for, from it. 
right? So it can't be like, yeah, if you fed me ice cream every hour on the hour, I would be 10x more productive, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't count uh, as like, as a, an improvement here, right? Because that's like a personal sort of thing, right? So I think those are really important. And I, you know, I, I will say the first reading of this where it's like evaluating, you know, from 86 to 96 or whatever, uh, Fred Brooks, I think, does have a follow up where he evaluates it that we didn't read. I read it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I skimmed it and it seems like he just pretty much agrees with what he said before. Yeah. And he does some some uh, takedowns of people who disagreed with him that are yeah, that yeah, are yeah, yeah. arguably entertaining to read. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, I wasn't born for the first part of that and then was very young for the second part. I don't really know looking back. I, I'm just saying I don't think I can really evaluate were there 10x improvements in productivity from those time periods. I really have no way to do that. So I'm much more interested in, in your second reading of like, you know, can we get these improvements? Is 10x really, are productivity measurements really measurable like that? I have no idea. Uh, but I will also say what I think we should also focus on is 10x improvements in not just the dimensions he talks about, productivity, reliability, and simplicity, but in any dimension that we're interested in. Like, could we make programming 10x more accessible, 10x more fun, 10x less boring, what, whatever. Yeah, I think those are two different ones in my mind. But yes, <laughs> yeah. right? Like something like that. I think those are also improvements that I care about and probably care about more than productivity, reliability, and simplicity. Yeah, like I, I could imagine making programming 10x more uh, or, or 10x less boring by making it like, uh, you know, some terrorizing, like old gods, tentacles coming out of the screen, like ripping your face <laughs> yeah. apart. Yeah, I'm yeah. not bored, but exactly. I'm not having fun either. So yeah, they <laughs> yeah, are, see? they are separate. They dimensions. are separate, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, yeah, let's, let's dive in. Oh. I can't use those <laughs> words not, now. No, you you cursed, cursed those words. They're cursed. Let's read the paper. Let's read the paper. Uh, oh, actually. Oh, shoot. I have one more. Uh, framing quibble because this he does so much framing uh -huh. and when you read this paper without the framing I think it's more enjoyable so yeah getting away from that framing is good there's another frame that we have to break out of and that is the first line of his pull quote there is no single development uh -huh. what is a single development so he, he will get into his examples later on but it's a really weasley kind of framing device because it's it feels like what counts as a single development is can you come up with a name for this thing does this thing have a name so for instance one that he doesn't talk about but like waterfall right waterfall as a as a software development methodology where it's like you know you're going to do your big design up front and then you're going to do you know your after you've got your specifications you're going to do your implementation and then you're going to do your testing and then you're done or whatever you know the the waterfall development process because that has a name I think he would count that as a as a, a single development. I mean, he does talk about getting rid of waterfall. Yes, yeah. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. so yes, I would agree. So it, it, the things that are given, considered to be a single development, are very um, loosely treated. It's not like, you know, this exact implementation of classes within this specific programming language with this specific compiler on this machine architecture when you use this methodology with it. Like, it's not very tightly scoped. But it is something that he uses as a way of kind of 
and this comes up in the in the no silver bullet refired uh, follow up essay where in ninety five he reflects back on the nine years since this original paper came out and uses it as an opportunity to dunk on some people who took uh, umbrage with this paper by saying, "Hey, you can't." point to more than one thing and say that those things together led to a 10x improvement because i said only one thing and so (laughs) some of the responses where they were taking a couple of things together and saying look we got 10x out of that he says no 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 i'm still right so yeah yeah there's there's definitely the the one thing i do agree it kind of feels very it feels very artificial not just kind of it feels very artificial what we're interested in is not is there one thing i get it it's no silver bullet right yeah and and there is something good about that because people do often point to one thing in in some you know defined way there as if that's going to solve all of it and i think it almost always is these combination of factors um but yeah, I agree. Let's take off if we're thinking about improvements in the future, let's just take off the the one thing criteria and say, yeah, it could be lots of things playing together over a longer time span, etc., right? Yeah. Cuz we're not looking for trying to, you know, micro-optimize programming. We're trying to radically reinvent programming wholesale. So we are trying to do that, right? That's the, that's the plan, <laughs> right? We're going to tear it all down and rebuild. Welcome to the Radically Recreate Programming Wholesale Podcast. We're the programming separatists. We're going <laughs> to start our own faction of programming and we'll sabotage GitHub. We're going to be Luddites, just destroy all the current yeah. programming. Right. Yep. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so now I think we get to what might be my favorite part of the paper and maybe the the one, you know, part that is most resounding to this day and that is most famous from this paper. And it's time, I think, for Jimmy's philosophy corner to to cover this first part of the paper, which is the essence and accident. Yes, that is where I was going. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. So, so yes, this is one of those things that people get, you know, confused about with this. There's these two words, essence and accident. And accident in our modern parlance means like a mistake, right? But this actually is like an Aristotelian term. And the, the best way I can try to give here is we think about like what makes something a cat, Okay, so you have catness, right? The thing that unites all cats is the essence of the cat. And then you have the the facts about any particular cat. Like this cat has orange fur. This cat is mean. This cat is nice. This cat hunts mice, right? Whatever it is that is uh, not part of being a cat itself, those are the accidents, So these are the properties that an object has that it didn't have to have. It could have lacked those properties and still have been the kind of thing it is. It still could have been a cat. So you can have a cat with orange fur, Mm -hmm. and that's a specific cat, and the specific cat happens to have orange fur. But if that specific cat, or even cats in general, when you think about them, if they didn't have orange fur, they would still be cats. Yep. If this cat didn't have orange fur, it would still be a cat. So you can take orange furness away, mm-hmm. and it is still, we will still treat it as being a cat. But if you took, for example, life, like one of the things, a living, a dead cat is not a cat. A robot cat is not a cat, 
right? It might look like a cat, but if you if you opened it up and you discovered, oh no, this thing is made out of you know metal and silicon, and it's you know we would find it's not really a cat, right? And so there's these things that make something a cat, it, and it's you know in Aristotle's time it was kind of admitted that like of course we don't know all of the exact criteria. Uh, you know, you couldn't like list all of these criteria, but there's something right about that. There is something that takes something from being the kind of thing it is to not being that kind of thing. Um, and these are actually like still really important uh, today. Like if you think about the essence of something, one way you can think about it is its persistent properties. What sorts of changes can it undergo and still continue to exist? So a piece of paper, right? If I write on the piece of paper, it's still a piece of paper. If I burn the piece of paper, there's no longer a paper there, right? And so these are the kinds of things that we can think about, uh, uh, you know, the undergoing of transformations. And just because I have to be nerdy, I'll mention a fun example uh, that's often used uh, in philosophy, which is uh, a lump of clay, okay? So you can take a lump of clay and I can mold it and shape it into a statue, do I have one object or two objects? I have the statue and the lump of clay, right? But those are one and the same, except they have different properties. The lump of clay can survive me smashing it. The statue does not survive me smashing it. So we have two objects that have the exact same material, but yet they have different properties, so they can't be the same object. This is the, uh, I think it's Calvin and Hobbes. The one where they put the bread into the toaster and they take the toast out, but where does the bread go? <laughs> That's good. I like it. Yes, that is that. So yeah. So these are these. This is what these distinctions are used for, right? Mm -hmm. The statue has an essence of being in this certain form. The lump of clay does not, right? These are those. This essence and accident. And then here, the lump of clay has the accidental property of being in that certain shape of the statue. Right, whereas the statue has that same property, essentially. And debatably, you could say once it has become a statue, it is not a lump of clay anymore. Well, yeah, but it is still the clay, right? Yes, we it's could still just, the we clay. We could say that yeah. clay, right? And this gets into, like, th this is, you know, an entire field of study uh, called philosophy that some, you know... <laughs> narcissistic masochistic people get into <laughs> there's like ship of theseus is you know uh -huh. something everybody's going to be screaming at their at their cassette players listening to us talk about this um the other one is you know is a hot dog a sandwich that's a very popular one on the internet recently <laughs> you know what makes yeah. a sandwich a sandwich um, exactly yeah and biology is dealing with these kinds of things as well, right? And they might get rid of this sort of Aristotelian language, and that's totally fine. I'm not, I'm not trying to defend Aristotelian concepts here. I'm just explaining them. But you can imagine, you know, when do we have another species, right? Speciation seems to be a question about these kinds of, of properties, right? Mm -hmm. What is it for it to be a member? And you might think it's just arbitrary. You might think it's just convention. But even if it were, that doesn't matter for the distinction to hold here, right? Mm -hmm. And so how does this apply to, to programming here, to software? Well, uh, Fred Brooks wants to say that there's certain kinds of problems that we face 
um, or certain types of tasks that we do. And some of those are essential tasks that they're things we have to do because they're just part of the, the problem statement we have. And then some of them are accidental. Some of them are just facts of history. They're ways that we have to do it right now. But if we kind of like take a high-minded way of looking at these problems and programming, they're, they wouldn't really have to be there. So if I had a computer that shut itself off every five minutes and I had to turn it back on and boot it, this would be an accidental property of me programming is that every five minutes I have to turn my computer back on. But maybe it's kind of harder to say, but maybe there's something like, you know, the concept of data and putting data in a shape, right? Like that's essential to the problem I'm solving. I need to have that. And so uh, in this like abstract here, we could ask the question, how much of what software engineers now do is still devoted to the accidental as opposed to the essential? So that's the question. Mm-hmm. We'll find out that Fred Brooks thinks very little. Uh, he thinks most of what we do is essential. Well, I don't know that he actually anywhere in this paper says what he thinks the split is. He does in the follow-ups that I read. I didn't oh, yeah. catch anywhere in here where he says it. But what he does say is... Unless it is more than nine-tenths of all effort, so unless the parts that are accidental are more than – are consuming more than nine-tenths of all of our effort as programming and, and thus the essential tasks are consuming less than one-tenth, shrinking all the accidental activities to zero time will not give an order of magnitude improvement. So he's looking for this 10x improvement. And so to get that 10x improvement, if you're only attacking accidental aspects of programming and you want a 10x improvement, then by definition, that means that at least 90% of what constitutes our programming efforts have to be attending to accidental aspects of the programming and not essential aspects. And if we've already shrunk the accidental parts down to less than 90% if it's more like, you know, 70-30 or 50-50 split between essential and accidental, then any new single technique or single development that just attacks the accidental stuff won't give us a 10x improvement because there's not a way to, if it's 50-50 and you reduce all the accidental stuff to zero, you're still left spending 50% of the effort that you started with. And so that is not a 10x improvement. That's that's only a 2x improvement. And so that is that is the challenge here is, is can we figure out if there is still even 90% of our effort going to accidental stuff? And thank goodness... He actually, in this paper, gives us some pretty good examples of what things he counts as being essential and what things he counts as being accidental. So we don't have to sit here pigeonholing over, you know, well, is this is is a type system essential or is it accidental? He does give us a sentence, uh, maybe two (laughs) about what is the essence. But yeah, I kind of took that as like this feels uh very uh, reductionistic <laughs> at the best. So I'll read what I what I think he's saying, what you're referring to as the essence, and we'll see. Yeah, we can talk about that. So uh, the essence of a software entity is a construct of interlocking concepts, data sets, relationships among data items, algorithms, and invocations of functions. That that seems to be what he thinks the essence is. Yeah, and and then I also I have that highlighted as my 
definition for essence. But I also had the second sentence. This essence is abstract in that the conceptual construct is the same under many different representations. And I think that's important. And I'll, I'll say why in a second. Um, but just to elaborate on that, I believe the hard part of building software to be the specification, design, and testing of this conceptual construct, not the labor of representing it and testing the fidelity of the representation. And this right here, what he's describing, is very well aligned with the theory-building view. I think that what he's saying is that the, the thing that he's calling a conceptual construct is what we, given Maurer's theory-building view, would call the theory. And then the accidental stuff is all of the, you know, the particular implementation details, the source text, the documentation, the other stuff that, that you act out in performance of the theory, um, but that the, the essential part of the thing you're building is the theory. It's the, the sort of interlocking concepts that you have to develop as you decide what to program and then actually building it, the labor of representing it and testing the fidelity of the representation, that is all the accidental stuff. So that's, that's how I read it is that if you take a theory building view, the essential part is the theory and the theory building and the accidental stuff is all the other stuff. Yeah. I'm going to have to disagree. All right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I see where you're coming from, and I, I'm happy that we're using Nower as a frame here. That makes me super excited. Uh, but I think Nower's theory, we have to remember, is not fully conceptual because it's like it's embodied knowledge, right? So that's my a quibble, but that's fine. It's just a quibble. Mm -hmm. But I think the main thing is, what is the theory a theory of? It's a theory of the concrete program and how it maps to the world. It's not a theory of the abstract ideas. It's a theory of the real representation, the, the representation itself. You To build the theory is to labor to represent it, and to have the theory is to be able to explain and do certain moves and talk about the representation itself, to make changes to the representation, etc. So I, I do see a mapping here but I think with Nower, the representation and the conceptual kind of all come in together as as part of the theory. Yeah, so I see. What, uh, I I totally agree with that. That the theory that you build in the theory building view includes as part of it some of this accidental stuff, mm -hmm. and you could cleave that out in theory or replace it with different accidental stuff and still just be speaking of the theory that is built separately from source texts and that sort of thing. So but I it guess it would be a different kind of theory because one of the parts of your theory is knowing how to make changes to the yeah. concrete thing. Yeah. Right. So I think a, another, a better way to, to look at this then would be to say, all of the stuff in the in, when you're using the theory building view, all of the stuff that is not the theory you built is accidental. Is that fair? Huh. Interesting. Um, Source text, documentation. You know, any artifacts that are produced in the course of producing the software that are not the theory held by the programmers. See, I, I think the theory itself is going to have a bunch of accidental things too. Yes. Yep. Okay. But the, okay. But the inverse of that, 
the non-theory parts in the theory building view, the stuff that are like the source text documentation, stuff that's not the theory, I'm saying all of that is accident. See, I, okay, so I don't think so. Okay. All right. Uh, and the reason I don't think so is because one of the things we're doing, at least by the frame we have here in this paper, right, we're trying to build a system to accomplish something, right, in the market, solve a problem, whatever. And that we have to have the running artifact in order to meet that goal. Mm -hmm. And we would not meet our goal if we didn't have that artifact. So therefore, it's part of the essence. And in the theory building view, the running code is not part of the theory. But I think here it would have to be essential. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Yep. That makes sense. So I got one more on this. <laughs> okay. Good. I love it. I'm all, I'm all for it. So I have I, I, my highlighting scheme in this PDF, and hopefully, unlike last time, preview.app will do a good job of respecting all of the annotations and highlights and notes and stuff that I've put in this PDF, and so I won't lose all that work like last time. Um, but one of the things that I do is I, I, um, I'm very traditional. I highlight stuff in green when I think it's good. And I highlight stuff in pink when I think it's bad. Why pink? Because there's no red. <laughs> so it's the closest to red. So green means good and reddish means bad. And I have a giant sea of green for that quote that Jimmy started us off with. The essence of a software entity is a construct of interlocking concepts. All of that is a big sea of green with one little pink bit in the middle, which is algorithms. So he says, the essence of a software entity is a construct of interlocking concepts. And then this is a, uh, a colon. So here are the concepts. The concepts are data sets, relationships among data items, algorithms, and invocations of functions. And I can see why the, the choice of data sets relationships among data items and invocations of functions can be considered essential. I do not see how algorithms could be considered essential. And I'm wondering if you can convince me of why the choice of algorithms, because I'm assuming that's what he means by this, not just like the existence of algorithms as part of the program, because that seems sort of reductive to the point of uselessness. Um, because the other things are more specific than that, right? Like relationships among data items and data sets, meaning like this particular collection of data. Those are more than just like data is going to be a part of it, right? Data exists. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying the choice of sets of data, relationships among data items, the invocations of functions, those all feel essential. But why algorithms? Why like the choice of algorithm as an essential part? I don't, I don't get that. Yeah, so I will say I I personally read this as just that algorithms are there, uh, but but I can defend the other reading. I can defend the other reading. Do you want to defend the other reading? <laughs> yeah, I'll defend the other reading. <laughs> all right. If all right. we take algorithms to not be um, so narrow as I think you're thinking of them, and instead be a series of steps that need to be performed, I think the series of steps could be essential. Um, maybe there's multiple of them that could be essential, but some set of them have to be for business processes, right? I need a series of steps that the user is going to go through to buy an item, right? And if we're talking about at that sort of level of abstraction, like we need to have certain things have to happen after another, we need to have these things follow, like you can't buy the item and then check it out and, you know, like you, you 
check it out and then you buy the item you can't pay before the you can't pay after the item shipped whatever right like these sorts of like constraints that we have i think algorithms here is cast more broadly than just like which it which version of pathfinding that i use right um but i think he just means that there has to be some set of algorithms that we chose i don't think he means that there has to be a unique set of algorithms if we do it more narrowly so that's like saying the essence of a software entity is that it is runnable as software. I mean, invocations of functions also says that. Yes, but that's why I think it says invocations of functions. I feel like algorithms is saying something different. I think it's saying that there's going to be this like, that you are going to arrange a sequence of actions and invocations of functions is saying there will be actions. Okay, I'll try one more time to defend it. Uh, I do think he just means existence, but I'll try one more time to defend it. All right. Okay. So if we don't think that he means the particular algorithm, like you had to use a star here, you can't yeah. use. Yeah. If, but what he could say is the kinds of algorithms, right? Uh, the class of algorithms that we have to use. So for example, if I need to sort something that is not required, I can't just do use data sets, data, relationships among data items. Well, relationships among data items covers sort. No, because there's, no, no, there's, there's multiple uh, relationships that I could have. And one of them is sequence. Yeah, but I don't, <laughs> just because they have that relationship doesn't mean I've put them in the order to access them that way. And so you could say like, oh, but any algorithm that, does sorting would work, right? So we'll say, so that's why algorithms shouldn't be in here because any algorithm would work. But no, BOGO sort would not work for almost any application that you care about, right? The, the, the time complexity of that algorithm does matter for being able to practically solve the problem. And Fred Brooks here is very practically minded. Yeah, he's definitely not like I'm 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 definitely coming at this from a perspective of like saying that the essence of software is that it's runnable doesn't sit well with like the halting problem like those kind of fight each other a little bit right like it's sure for all practical intents and purposes the software has to terminate but we know that that's technically impossible that it's technically impossible for any software to terminate ever so um so i think that statement i have to disagree with technically impossible for any software to terminate no software never terminates you can't quit me <laughs> <laughs> okay okay uh but yeah so i think that that's why like we have yes. to have there's a class of algorithms we're gonna need to include and to make any non-trivial application that doesn't invoke some of these algorithms is just not going to happen sure right? i'll i'll grant that that's what he meant though the I feel like you could take it out and cover the meaning of that with data sets, relationships among data items and invocations of functions. And you could probably simplify that even further to just functions and data. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I still think this essence is awkward and wrong. So, all right. Uh, it's time for you, Jimmy, to share. What is, what is your essence of software? Uh, so I'm not going to give an essence cause yeah, I don't, I don't think I can do that. Just like I, this is why I said Aristotle didn't think we could, you know, give a whole criteria here. But the problem for me is why he says this essence is he's now, I think, mixing these levels that I was talking about. Is this the essence of programming? Like me sitting at a computer programming? Or is this the essence of industrial programming, building software systems, right? And he seems here to be narrowly focused on what the essence of a, a software entity is, 
And then he wants to say the hard part is of building software is the essence, basically. But like, he's talking about productivity, reliability, simplicity. He's talking about like industrial strength things and the amount of time it takes and cost and all of these things that just don't seem to play into, like, I feel like even if this was a good definition of essence in abstract, it's a very bad definition for the rest of the paper we're going to talk about where he keeps coming back and saying, but that doesn't tackle the essence as if like this is the essence of the whole problem of software engineering at an industrial scale. Yeah. And that seems very weird to me. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So like it could be a, a, a maybe a definition for programming in the small, but once we're like past that, it feels like a very weird definition. And I would love to get down to like where this really is what I spend all my time with, but spoiler, it's not. And like most of what I spend my time with is not this hard stuff. And even if it's hard, it's not hard because it's the most timely part. Like, you know, it, it just, the whole thing feels a little confused for that. Even though I agree with, I think the general thrust of the paper, I feel like some of these details, he, he kind of like confuses some levels. Yeah. And he does like, we're not just trying to project this sort of, you know, lack of clarity around what level he's talking about onto this paper. Like he invites that. He says that mm -hmm. there is no single development in either technology or management technique. Like the choice of management technique as the thing to be thinking about mm -hmm. means he does want us to read all of these things as um, ideas that are applying at that industrial scale, uh, you know, across the whole industry, large companies, big teams, huge projects, huge budgets. Like he is thinking about this as a, as a suit and tie, you know, working industrial programmer in the 1980s. So yeah, I think it is fair to kind of say this reduction of the notion of essence to be something that's just about like these particular technical aspects of a particular running program is a bit of a weird reduction given that scope that he's, he's yeah. holding. And, and even if we back up, right, he, he's like justification for why we're talking about a silver bullet, right, is because we see these missed schedules, blown budgets, and flawed products. So we hear desperate cries for a silver bullet, something to make software costs drop as rapidly as computer hardware costs do. So like to him, how have we gotten the silver bullet? If software costs drop 10x would be another way of phrasing it, right? Which feels like... That's easy. Yeah, that's unfair. Open source, right? You don't have to pay anybody anything. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get there, right? We'll get there. Uh, but like yeah. that, uh, which I do think is probably one of the answers for, you know, a single thing, yeah. uh, if this is the criteria. But like now we're talking about costs and before we're talking about like the essence of like data sets, but data sets don't cost anything yeah, of themselves. Yeah. So like yeah. if you tackled the essence of the problem, you wouldn't at all get to the cost part because yeah. all that's free. Yeah. Right. Or like just pay engineers way less and then you drop the cost, even though you didn't fix the time. Like none of, none of this, like it, it just feels very confused in the different levels that we're at. And like I said, I don't want this to be a criticism of the paper. I just want to be like, you've tried to get rid of some of the framing. I think this is also stuff that we have to just like, let's think at these different levels and talk about them there. And to, to give him credit, 
Um, the no silver bullet refired follow-up, like, yes, it is him responding to a bunch of criticisms that raised many of these points that we're raising and saying, well, here's why that criticism doesn't count, why, you know, no, 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 you you took away the wrong thing. But at least he is giving a platform to those criticisms that I otherwise, like, if, if he hadn't published all those things and responded to them, I wouldn't have seen those responses. And some of them do. And he agrees, much to his credit, some of them do point out flaws in the framing of this particular, you know, set of arguments. And he, in responding to them, he does say, yes, you're right. If that was the framing, this would be a silver bullet, but that wasn't the framing I meant. So it's not a silver bullet in that definition, but it is giving us an order of magnitude improvement to have open source or whatever it is, you know, that, that does improve things. It's just not the kind of improvement I was looking for or concerned about. And I think it's it's also worth saying once again that he is subtweeting somebody with this paper. He's specifically subtweeting like that there are a lot of people coming forward and saying, adopt my methodology that has never been <laughs> tested and, uh, you know, we've done a toy project with it, but we didn't have to ship anything to any customers. And we saw, you know, a 10x or 20x or 50x improvement in this metric. There's a lot of what he thinks of as like charlatanism in methodology and in technology at the time. And this is meant to be a sort of a, a countering force to that. It's meant to equip people who are being subject to the pressures to adopt these new things coming out with some, some counter arguments to say, Hey, don't just go adopt the, you know, the new process du jour and think that you're going to get a 10 X improvement, because if it's not addressing essential complexity, there's no way it can give you a 10 X improvement just definitionally. So that's, 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 that is the framing that I think we should keep that in mind because um, well, it is fun to strip away his framings and, and play in the space. It's worth um, honoring the fact that like he is a, uh, he has a certain goal in mind for this, and it's not just to write a really kicking paper that everybody thumbs up to, but it's to stop people from being swindled a little bit. Yeah, and I think with his framing, you know, my my assessment is I think he's right not just for his time, but kind of now too. Like I do think, and maybe it doesn't make the point that some people think it makes. Yeah. Uh, like they think, oh, well, that, therefore we can't have a 10x improvement, right? Like that's not the point, but like that there isn't going to be this one thing that has, that gives us the 10x improvement, I actually think is a really good insight and important to consider. And I think that's why he, you know, like you said, he he's focusing on people claiming their one thing will do it. And I think, you know, we have to have a holistic view of this, but let's, let's, let's uh, continue <laughs> on. Oh my gosh. I can't say let's dive in anymore. Next episode, I'm just going to say, um, and it's going to be repeated a million times. Yeah. Um, 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 <laughs> Or write, which I know I say all the time. Uh, so uh, mm -hmm. the next section here, we kind of get into some of these uh, inherent properties of essence. He has a, a list of these, and they're complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility. Mm -hmm. So I figure we want to, you know, dive into what he means here. I don't have a whole lot of, of highlights. I do, yeah. I've got tons okay. of stuff I can I can get into about this. I found this well, interesting. 
I will just give you my system for highlights since you gave yours. <laughs> cool. I have three colors. I have blue, green, and yellow. Uh-huh. And I change between them randomly when I feel like. Nice. Yeah. But if something's really important, I'll use two colors. Wow. <laughs> At the same time? Uh-huh. It's just like overlay them. <laughs> Whoa. I don't know. You must be using a different app than me because I don't think I can do that. Um, uh yeah i'm using muse for oh okay yeah right i just got like a pen highlighter and yeah uh and i only recently i usually only had one color but then i decided i was gonna do like a color scheme Mm -hmm. for like good or bad or an ivan those are gonna be my three (laughs) good bad and ivan the three genders (laughs) (laughs) um but i realized like halfway through that i had not done that at all and I had just used one color the whole time, and so then I just decided to keep randomly changing colors. This was a few readings back. But, oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. So oh. I'll, 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 I'll tour us through this part, and if, if we hit something that you have stuff to, to say uh, about, yeah. um, go for it. Um, so the first one of these, so there's the, yeah, four inherent properties of this irreducible essence of modern software, complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility. First up complexity. And this one is interesting to me, especially also what we were just talking about with like essence versus accident. Um, because there's a certain other paper called out of the tar pit that, references no silver bullet and talks a little bit about essential complexity and accidental complexity and how important it is to reduce accidental complexity. And maybe someday we'll do an episode about that next time. Oh, we'll see. (laughs) I think, I think at the very least we should wait until April 1st to do that, to do that (laughs) episode. Um, So, but the definition of complexity in this paper is kind of interesting because sort of like essence versus accident in software, it's not quite clear to me exactly what he means. But the, the definition that he gives is that, and I'll, I'll read a quote here, software entities are more complex for their size than perhaps any other human construct because no two parts are alike least above the statement level. If they are, we make the two similar parts into one, a subroutine, open or closed. And that's an interesting thing to think about, that there's like the size of a program could be a lot bigger if you had tons of duplication, but because we're so concerned with removing duplication and promoting reuse and and making, you know, reusable abstractions, that we tend to shrink the size of our software while preserving the complexity. And that the, the complexity can be measured by things like the different numbers of states that a program can be in, or like maybe the cyclomatic complexity, right? How many paths through the program can you take if you look at all the branching statements and calls into subroutines and that sort of thing. So there's this interesting idea that I, I kind of enjoyed here that like that software is is large, but it's this large condensate of complexity that we've shrunk software down in in size while preserving some absolute amount of complexity. And that to me is just something interesting to mentally picture. I don't know how useful it is in thinking about, you know, hey, will this technique allow us to attack complexity? Because that's what he's saying here, right? 
We've been poisoned by the out of the tar pit paper. Oh, shit, I'm getting into it now. We've been poisoned by the out of the tar pit paper into thinking that essential complexity is unavoidable and irreducible. Um, but the essential stuff that Brooks is talking about is reducible and is avoidable. And he's saying the silver bullet isn't one that attacks just the accidental aspects, but it has to attack both the essential and the accidental if it's to give us a 10x improvement, if the split is anything less than 90-10. So he is saying it is possible to reduce essential complexity here, or he's not stating that directly, but that's the implication. And so some of these ways of thinking about complexity as being things that could be reduced don't, as we're talking about complexity and as we're talking about these other things that are essential, don't think that essential means unavoidable. Don't think that essential means irreducible. That's that's tar pit poisoning. That's not what Brooks is is presenting here. So that's that's the start of the of the section about complexity. I have a couple of other things, but I wanted to give you a, a chance to jump in, Jimmy, if you've got anything. Yeah, I, it is It is kind of hard to make sense of what he means by a complexity here being essential because like, it's just like the algorithm question, right? Does he mean this exact amount? And I think, no, he doesn't mean this exact amount of complexity is essential. I think he just means software will always be complex, mm-hmm. right? Um, and... He even says here, like, hence, descriptions of a software entity that abstract away its complexity often abstract away its its essence. And I think that's right. I think that there's no getting around the fact that software has many states, which is what he kind of equates with complexity, that there's lots of different ways for things to combine together, etc. Um, but I think he jumps from that to, like, and complexity necessarily leads to all of these these cost problems uh, and time yeah. constraints and et cetera that feels like a, a weird leap. It feels unfounded. He doesn't justify it very well, I don't think. Yeah, I'll read here uh, what he says. He says, Many of the classical problems of developing software products derive from this essential complexity and its nonlinear increased with size. Oh, you've also got the paper that's full of uh, OCR issues that uh-huh. I was reading. It's nonlinear increased with size. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be increase with size. That's how I read it, at least. Yeah, yeah. It was, I was, I was like, what? Uh, uh, this doesn't make, yeah, there are a bunch of uh, uh, typos here. Um, and so- I highlighted them. I highlighted them in blue. And so as we read, <laughs> I have decided we're going to include the OCR errors, uh, maybe call them out, maybe not. But if you hear us read something and it sounds like that was that was bad grammar, blame blame the OCR that produced this uh, password protected PDF that wound up on Brett Victor's website that I cracked the password for so that I could add my notes to it without having to know what the password was. Blame the complexity of software. Uh, From the complexity comes the difficulty of communications among team members, which leads to product flaws, cost overruns, schedule delays. And that that feels like a big leap. Yes, it does. Yep. I mean, just even, I mean, let's just like, if we're trying to be like essence here, like why are there even schedules, right? There's nothing... Like schedule delays that assumes there's a schedule. Like it's just very confusing to me. This kind of why is there a team, right? Like uh, communication among team members. Why isn't it one person doing it, 
right? And it's because he wants to operate at this big scale. And I, I just think that that's really important to have in mind. And so what he's really asking here about the complexity is not like, is complexity essential in the little artifact? But given the the amount of complexity we know software has to have, you know, roughly, can we have a human organization that can deal with it effectively, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it is kind of this, like when he talks about problems that will solve the complexity issue, he doesn't mean, can you reduce complexity? He means, can you reduce complexity enough that it solves these human level factors as well. And that for me, that just seems obviously no, but also I realize so many people pretend that they can do that, right? They do have their thing. That's going to solve all of your problems, even management techniques. I mean, I think agile here, yeah. right? Agile. You just adopt agile. Yeah. Your software will be less complex because you'll be building it in this certain way. And you'll have rituals for how you do these things and cross team communication will be fine because you properly divide up things and you know, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, we've seen how that doesn't work. You do you do extreme programming. You do two programmers, one keyboard. That's the that's the way to solve this complexity that is inherent in software. Yeah, yeah, it is the yeah. essential part of software. Mm-hmm. And and it, like I I take this whole paragraph that Jimmy's quoting from. Like it gets it to for my money, it gets worse. From the complexity of the functions comes the difficulty of invoking those functions, which makes programs hard to use. From complexity of structure comes the difficulty of extending programs to new functions without creating side effects. Like, these are really specific concerns. These are really specific worries about particular kinds of complexity. From the complexity comes the difficulty of enumerating, much less understanding all the possible states of the program. And from that comes the unreliability. Like I'm with you, complexity uh, as measured by the number of states leads to the difficulty of enumerating and understanding those states. But I don't think it directly follows that from that comes the unreliability. That feels like a leap where it's like, yeah, you can get unreliability of that, but it doesn't follow in a like an if and only if sort of way. So the one thing that he does say that I think is right, he says it in a weird way, so I'm not going to quote it, but that it brings security trapdoors. Yeah, yeah, that one. And was... that one, I do think is very valid. I think, you know, the complexity in terms of number of states almost does necessarily bring the ability to have weird security issues. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that like that's that's if not true in in a like you know, galaxy brain, what is software kind of sense. It's definitely true in an industrial programming. We are IBM in the 1980s, you know, shipping DOS kind of sense. I mean, and just think about like, you know, the speculative execution that, oh, yeah. you know, these, these CPUs will do and how that opens up a crazy number of states. And just because it added this new way, you can now detect it, right? Like to me, it does seem like as we get more and more complex, the surface area of those security vulnerabilities just increases. And there's always going to be ways to, to fit yourself into that fabric that wouldn't have been there if you had a simpler system. So I think that's one that he does get right here. Yeah, so this this business of complexity being essential is debatable at best. Um but that idea that complexity is like as as we get better and better at building software and and saying more with less, 
there is a certain dynamic where the complexity is preserved as the size of the software shrinks, and that makes software a very interesting kind of material or a very interesting kind of, you know, a, a, as a thing that we build, it has a, a curious kind of quality that isn't the same as other things that humans build, like buildings, automobiles, whatever, where the amount of complexity does not so it varies more directly with the change of scale. Like the bigger you make a bridge, the more complex that bridge generally needs to be where in software, that's not quite the case. Yeah. And I think this next thing, so we move from complexity to conformity. Mm -hmm. And I think this actually helped me understand the complexity better because it's very clear here what he doesn't have in mind is the with complexity is like the essential complexity of the tar pit vapor. Yeah. Um, but the like practically minded complexity, mm -hmm. right? Because what he mentions here about conformity could go away if we're talking about like the high minded essence, right? So I'll just, I'll, he says, you know, conformity really, he means like you have to conform to something, your software has to conform to some other software. Yes. And he wants to say that that's a bad state of affairs. It's going to be complicated for this reason. I, I do love this little quote. Um, so he talks about, he's kind of contrasting like physics and software, right? And how physics can deal with complexity in a way that software can't. And he says, here's the justification. Einstein repeatedly argued that there must be simplified explanations of nature because God is not capricious or arbitrary. No such faith comforts the software engineer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how that, that to me, that was the best, that was the best little quote here. Um, I mean, so what he wants to say is like all the complexity we have to deal with is like human made complexity. It's going to be arbitrary. It's going to be annoying. It's going to feel wrong and it doesn't matter anyways. If we want to have a business, if we want to have a productive product that we can sell on the market, we're going to have to conform. And the, the the sort of the definitional quote for like what exactly does conformity mean is this one to me. Much of the complexity that a software engineer must master is arbitrary complexity forced without rhyme or reason by the many human institutions and systems to which their interfaces must conform. So you are, you have to write your software on top of some existing operating system or some existing browser, or you have to use some existing module ecosystem, or you have to, you know, write your extension to this existing line of business application. You are standing on the shoulders of giants and those shoulders are very bumpy and unstable. And so you have to, you know, do what you can to balance on top of this trembling giant <laughs> and not fall off. Uh, anybody who's played shadow of the Colossus, there's your, there's your mental image for what it's like to be a programmer in the 21st century. Um, so yeah, so conforming is, is the dealing with other people. It's the hell is other people of, of being a software engineer. And, and this is where I get confused even more about his talk of these are the essential things, mm -hmm. but he says yeah. here that they're not essential, right? And, and the way you can see that is the word essence and the word necessary are yeah. very interconnected in philosophical terms. I'm not going to be too nerdy on that. But he says these things are not because of necessity, uh, but only because they were designed by different people rather than by God. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which I just, okay. <laughs> um, if God made the interfaces, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Would they be good? Biology is, biology is kind of a mess, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I think that uh, this is really weird because he wants to say this is essential, but he even admits that it's not. It's just an accident of history. It's not necessary. We could do away with this. And in fact, there's even ideas about technology, the communicating with aliens problem, right? That could solve this problem that you don't have to conform because your software itself could inspect and investigate and figure out how to establish communication in a way where you don't have to do this. Yeah, you'd use protocol buffers. Open shot, done, <laughs> easy, got it, <laughs> no problem. Uh, but you get my point, right? Yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. feels this feels very counter to what he's talking about being essence. When he brings something that he very explicitly thinks is accident, he just thinks it's we can't fix it. Yeah, he thinks it's beyond repair. Yeah, I'm gonna save editor Ivan some work and not force him to interject here to remind you, the listener, that we are doing a little bit of playing with Brooks's frame, right? Brooks's frame is, are these things essential within the next 10 years between 1986 and 1996 at the industrial scale of computing stuff? Between 1986 and 1996 at industrial scale computing, yes, there is no avoiding the technical debt that working software engineers are going to have to stand on top of. It is an essential quality of what makes software at that scale at that time. No, it is not an essential quality of software if we get to be, you know, get to have our fun and play in the space and say, ooh, but what about my own little visual programming editor that I'm writing for myself and my own little walled garden? I don't have to stand on top of anybody's shoulders. Um, that's Kartek's whole thing, right? Is like, how do I, like, uh, Moo, how do I get away from having to have any, you know, dependency on the existing tech stack? I just want to do everything directly on top x86 and and not even that if possible. Yeah, that's like, it, maybe you could argue it's essential within his framing. But if you take his framing away, then no, yeah, conformity is not not an essential quality. Yeah, so that, I, I think, you know, this, I, I agree with you. This is his framing, and we can see what things he's considering essential, and they're definitely business practical things. Because the reality is, yes, you're not going to get rid of this. And, and I think if you ignore that fact, you can believe that you can make achievements in productivity that you just can't. So I do think he's, he's right here if we take this practical essential. Well, it's funny you say that because here's where I've got my first instance of a, is he wrong? Was there a single thing between 1986 and 1996 that produced a 10x improvement in one of these dimensions that he cares about, like cost, like reliability, like whatever, whatever, whatever. I've got a couple of things here that might count. And Jimmy, I'm going to get you to give a, uh, oh, yeah, that did actually do it. And oh, no, no, that didn't do it. Or a, yeah, I don't know. I just want to predict one. All right, go for it. HTTP. Oh, very close. Yes. Okay, um, okay, okay. Yep, very close. Uh, so uh, actually split HTTP in half. Uh -huh. TCP. Yes. TCP, I don't know if it predates 1986, but I think it had a heyday in the early 90s. Um, 
And I think that it may, may have been responsible for a dramatic change in the way that software is made, such that it would reduce costs or increase productivity or allow people to do more with less. Um, is it a, a good, bad movie, a bad, bad movie, or a movie you kind of liked? <laughs> uh, I mean... I just, I don't want to be all meta, but the, <laughs> it let you build more complex software. Oh no. Oh no. It made it worse. <laughs> right. It let you build more complex software. Did it reduce the cost? No, because now the complex software you're building, you're building more complex software. Yeah. And there all sorts of new companies started building software and spending money building software that they weren't spending before, meaning uh -huh. the amount of cost spent building software went way up because there was so many more pieces of software being built. Was there software? See, this is the problem with evaluating this. Are we asking the question, did it reduce in costs? Did it get more, did we get more productive building the new kinds of software we're now building yeah. given our new technologies? Or are you asking the counterfactual? Had we, if we had had TCP back in this day, could we have built this software project in a 10x faster way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to that one is definitely yes. Like there were projects that had to recreate their own network protocols yeah. that couldn't rely on blah, 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 that could have been made in a 10x faster way had they just had TCP already implemented and done for them, et cetera. But that's, that's it's which question we're asking. Yeah. I think Brooks really wants to ask the, not the counterfactual one of what could have happened, but are we actually now at a point where we build software that's 10x cheaper? Because this is a practical question based on people being frustrated from budget overruns, et cetera. Yeah. Like, like he's, he's trying to equip middle managers at, you know, software, uh, companies around the world with some arguments for when somebody comes to their business saying, hey, you know, use TCP instead of building your own uh, retry logic on top of UDP or whatever it was at the time. I was like one year old. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't programming much at that Infiniband. age. Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, one of the the like competitors i think that was a protocol i have no idea i was yeah. not born v92 kflex uh dbase if i start naming something maybe you know a, a stopped clock comes up with the right networking protocol twice a year um yeah so like if somebody had come to one of these companies and said, hey, use TCP instead of whatever you're doing instead, would that have led them to a 10x improvement? Well, maybe, maybe not. Would it have led to a 2x improvement? Probably. Um, so that, that, one, that one jumped out at me here as like conformity. TCP solved some of the conformity difficulty, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Because at the very least, it was standard and it took care of headaches that people would have had http is another great one but i think uh i think it by 96 it might have been a bit too early for http to really have had its heyday um other ones that i had in this in this to consider are rest but then that didn't start until the year 2000 so i yeah. framing is wrong and then sql which i think came from the 70s and uh gradually was was sql from the 70s sql is from the 70s right uh, i don't think 
I don't know when SQL itself started. Relational databases are, right. I think, yeah. caught in 70s. Yeah. So that was the other thought that I had that, like, like SQL in particular, but I guess the relational model... Yeah, it was model... 70s. 74. Okay. Cool. Nice. Good. Um, th- that may have been a... If you can count that as a single thing in Brooks's definition of a single, you know, innovation or, or a single development, um, that may have helped a certain software teams achieve a 10 X improvement, um, on the development of things that have to do like crud style stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then I will, we'll have more of these later when we get to other aspects. I've got other like, Hey, what about this? What about this? Um, but the next one, are you ready to go to the next one? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's, I think this one's the best, uh, the best in what sense? I think he's right. Changeability. So this is changeability. Uh, okay. So the next one's the best. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're keeping this practical frame, right, like it is changeability is the essence of software. That's the whole point of what people, why people want to codify something in software is it's much easier to change, relatively speaking, than a physical process or whatever, right? You can reshape it, recast it, keep up with the market, et cetera. That's why we're doing this. And it is it's just really hard. And it really does contribute to so much of our of our time, right? Is keeping software changeable, making changes to it, um, I really think he gets this one right. Even if the words and exact ways he say it, says it aren't the way I would say it, I think he's right about this property. And it's so much so that I have nothing highlighted from this section because reading through it, I was just like, yeah, checks out. Yep. I just have the first sentence. That's it. Yeah, it's just like, yep. Uh, it's We think it's more easily changed than it really is, uh, but also it is easier to change than almost everything, Yeah. right? There's no waste that you get from it that you have to like now dispose of or whatever. Like that's why I I'm fine with like fixing physical objects as long as I don't have to put a hole in something mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like you know cut something because like trying to repair that is such a chore. Uh, with software, I just undo. It's fine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, here is where Ivan will go <laughs> on uh, a 30 minute rant. No, so if this episode no, no, feels no. 30 minutes longer than normal, which will be longer impressive. than it should be 30 minutes longer <laughs> than it ought to be. Um, Here is why. Yeah. So the next, the next and uh, fourth and final quality that Brooks suggests is essential to software. That is the, that comprises the essence of software, at least as far as he cares about it is invisibility. And I'll quote, software is invisible and unvisualizable. And I have that sentence highlighted in pink because I disagree with it. Um, but then he, so so this is, I'm going to give a bit of backstory. This is the section of this paper that on my first read through, I didn't really care about. On my second read through, I hated, um, I hated this idea that, you know, software is invisible and unvisualizable like that. You know, I was big into my visualize everything, visual programming. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um, I was in that phase, which I'm not in anymore. Surprise. Um, and then on my third read through for today's podcast, I actually enjoyed this section and I've highlighted pretty much all of it. And pretty much all of it is in green, except mm. for that first sentence. Software is invisible and unvisualizable. And the whole rest of the paragraph I have highlighted in green. And I'll get into that in a second. 
Um, but the reason why, before I get into the what, the reason why it is highlighted in green and why I actually have come around and quite like this section is because I took it with the theory building frame. So reading through this with the theory building idea that, uh, you know, I brought up earlier, this actually resonated with me because the theory of a program is invisible and unvisualizable. That's what is a theory. A theory is not expressible. You can create an expression of a theory, but the theory itself is something that is just thought stuff that is not, you know, it's in your head. It's not a thing that you can quantify or, or represent um, itself. And so, of course, Jimmy, at the start of this episode, when I brought up that idea, said, actually, no, this essential accidental stuff is is orthogonal to the theory building view. So now I think I'm probably actually going to have to flip around and say, you know, this whole section, this is this is bad. No, no, um, I think you got this section right. Well, you, yeah. So do you think in this section what he's talking about is the theory? Uh, so I, I don't think it has to only include the theory. But that's not required. If the theory is a part of this and the theory itself is invisible, then the whole thing can't be completely visible, right? Yeah. Which is what he means by invisible. He doesn't mean an unvisualizable. He means the totality of it couldn't be visualized because there's all sorts of different ways you could visualize it. Not that you couldn't visualize some part of it, right? So I think for him, the theory here if we took the theory, that is a part of what he's talking about. And that part is invisible and unvisualizable. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right here. I want to, so I highlighted this whole paragraph. So I'm going to read this paragraph and I'm going to go bit by bit and we'll dig into it. But I actually want to read all of this because this is, there's, there's a lot of stuff I want to jump off of from this. So software is invisible and unvisualizable. Fuck that. Um, no, sorry. It's just my visual programming uh, instincts are kicking in. Um, but yes, in the theory building view, sure, maybe I'll grant that. Geometric abstractions are powerful tools. No argument. The floor plan of a building helps both architect and client evaluate spaces, traffic flows, and views. Okay, so yeah, a, a, a geometric representation of something that you're physically dealing with, like a building, it's a powerful tool. Um, when you're working with that floor plan, you know, quote, contradictions become obvious, omissions can be caught. Scale drawings of mechanical parts and stick figure models of molecules, although abstractions, serve the same purpose. A geometric reality is captured in a geometric abstraction. So he's setting up the idea that engineering disciplines like architecture and, you know, mechanical engineering and those sorts of things love to create geometric abstractions, some kind of representation of the thing that you're going to make that is not the thing itself. It's some working model, and you can make that as a physical thing in space. And then he goes on, and this is where my coloring flips from green back to pink. The reality of software is not inherently embedded in space. I'm going to come back to that in a sec. (laughs) Hence, it has no ready geometric representation in the way that land has maps, silicon chips have diagrams, computers have connectivity, schematics. Mm, Debatable. As soon as we attempt to diagram software structure, we find it to constitute not one, but several general directed graphs superimposed upon one another. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's several different general directed graphs you can use to diagram software. That's not debatable. 
The several graphs may represent the flow of control, the flow of data, patterns of dependency, time sequence, namespace relationships. Yeah, those are all different maps that you can make of software. You can visualize all that stuff. That's all graphicalizable. These are usually not even planar, much less hierarchical. Indeed, one of the ways of establishing conceptual control over such structure is to enforce link cutting until one or more of the graphs becomes hierarchical. Yeah, 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 who cares? In spite of progress in restricting and simplifying the structures of software, they remain inherently unvisualizable, thus depriving the mind of some of its most powerful conceptual tools. This lack not only impedes the process of design within one mind, it severely hinders communication among minds. All right, that's the end of the paragraph. To start pulling that apart, summary is basically... We can make visual models of things in some fields, but not in software. Why not in software? Well, because when you try to make visualizations of software, when you try to make models, what model do you make? Do you model the flow control, the flow of data, the patterns of dependency, time sequence? You could make so many different models of software and visualize it so many different ways, and those models are complex. They're not even planar. You can't put it down on paper. You'd need like 3D space or, or some higher dimensional way of arranging these models. And so that means it's inherently unvisualizable. You can't make visualizations of software because there's like multiple different visualizations you can make of software. What the hell? <laughs> Um, but then it ends with a banger. This lack not only impedes the process of design within one mind, it severely hinders communication among minds. Theory building view, right? The If you want to read this as the theory that the people who make the software have embodied within them and think about it as what is within the mind versus what is coming out, then yeah, like the fact that software is so hard to represent in other forms other than either in the mind or in the working runnable model the fact that it's so hard to come up with like you know a, a, a popsicle stick and marble or like you know pipe cleaner and and clothespin model of software like the fact that it's so hard to make some other representation of it sure does hinder communication um, like whiteboarding is you know it's one of those great things but it's kind of the best we've got for communicating what software is what it does what it should be how it works that sort of thing but like right in the middle here he lists off like here's a bunch of different things that we can visualize and it's it's not a very complete list but in it are the makings of so many different kinds of visualizations i just like I don't know what to make of this paragraph. I love it and I hate it at the same time. It's so good if you look at it in some ways and it's so bad if you look at it in some other ways. It's almost as though like, you know, this paragraph is is not written and inherently unwritable. Like, <laughs> So in the same way that conformity wasn't really the high-minded essence invisibility here i feel like is not the high-minded essence either right this is a practical essence and the argument here is clearly bad let's just like put that out there like it's like oh land has maps yeah what kind of maps what things are you showing on that map is it a topological map is it a population map is it a temperature like you know that would be like and yes you know, you could overlay data on the same map, 
right? But we have all these different projections on how we do things. Then that always leads out some detail that you would care about. It's the same argument for programs, right? So like the argument here is clearly bad, but I think the idea here is solid, right? Programs are not inherently embedded in space. I, I strongly disagree with that claim. I meant to come back to that, but anyway, sorry. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think, I think that's, I think that's obvious that they aren't. Uh, I think because, it's obvious they are. Damn it. No. <laughs> because the same program can have multiple different representations that are, and you, we would still call them the identical same program. Okay. Whereas the chair I have here, you can't have multiple different representations of that identical chair. Why not? You could have a schematic diagram. You could have a photograph of it. You can like that isn't the chair. So this is a map territory kind of thing, right? Like, well, I'm saying no. That's that's my point. The chair exists in space. Uh huh. And the program does not. Why not? It exists as bits on your in your RAM and on. And if your I copy CPU it registers. to another location. Yeah. If I copy those bits to another location, is it the same program? And the answer is yes. It's identical. Despite having two different spatial locations, where if I have two chairs with two different spatial locations, they're not identical. But this is the, like, if I dip my hand into the river and take it out and dip it in again, is it the same river, right? Like, if no. I copied the bits of the program from my machine to your machine, is it the same program? No, there are two copies of a program. The same program. Well, define same. <laughs> That's the thing. Define same. Does same mean these bits on this machine or do they mean this pattern of bits on any machine? And I think the more you go towards this pattern of bits on any machine, the more you invite the interpretation of software as being a thing that the spatial character of it is something that you can separate from any particular instance of that program. Yeah, so I think you're you're being a little more high-minded than I think we need to be here, and yet less high-minded than you need to be to get the distinction. So, <sighs> All right. Okay, so if I take a program, mm -hmm. right, we have it on one machine. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of text files. Let's keep everything simple. Sure. Right? But they're ASCII encoded, and then I re-encode them, Latin 1, UTF-8, whatever, right? I re-encode the same files, and I ask you, and we'll assume that the runtime, this language, it doesn't matter. It doesn't do different things, right? Mm -hmm. It would be interpreted the same way. I ask you, did I give you a new program or do we still have the same one? You would say, that's the same program. Even though the pattern of bits has changed, okay? Or let's say this, I keep the program, I make no changes to it, and my hard drive does defragmentation and moves where it is on the hard drive. Yeah, you would say that's a now a new program? Uh, I would only care to distinguish whether the program is the same or not insofar as it enables me to win the argument about whether software is visualizable <laughs> or not. Like, I'm, I, I'm really goal-oriented about this. Okay, so I think the inherently embedded in space or not is not a good argument for unvisualizable. Okay. I, I think it's a bad argument against software being visualizable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying, yeah. I think he's right that it's not embedded in space. Uh, we can agree to disagree on that. And, and we, could, we could argue interpretations. Uh-huh. We would end up agreeing, I think, ultimately. Uh, I, I do. I do think you don't hold such a weird identity uh, criteria. It, uh, it depends how, how much of a contrarian I'm feeling like, but... <laughs> 
but deep down in your soul. I will grant you that you have more powerful philosophical weapons than I do, so you would probably <laughs> win the debate because you know, you know uh, the names for things like the story of, you know, when you dip your hand in the river two times, is it the same river? Like, you know the name of that thing. I don't know the name of that thing. And so I I would have to bow to your expertise. I mean, that's a Parmenidean idea. There we go. Um, yeah. Yes. Parmenides, I'm pretty sure, is the one there. It's one of the pre-Socratics. Totally not editor Jimmy here knows that this was actually Heraclitus and not Parmenides. Parmenides believed that the world never changed, and Heraclitus believed that the world was in a state of constant flux. Hence, you can't step into the same river twice. Have to admit, pretty cool to put in one of these meta-statements here for the first time. Uh, so... <laughs> So, software is not embedded in space because I didn't say we that. can have <laughs> the ide- the identity is not about where it's located spatially, it's about the the program, right? And if I change the text, I could still have the same program. I think there's a notion of program identity that we could get behind, right? And it is it doesn't take account of space. But the whole inherently not visualizable, I think, is totally beside the point on the space bit. I actually think that a lot of why he wants to say it's not visualizable is about uh, this. Well, I think why he should say is about this time element to it, right? Uh, this chair, it does persist through time and it might make changes over time. But I can make a diagram of it that's just it in space ignoring time. And software, we always have this element of time. And so we have to map space and time to some dimension. This is why he says, like, we have to have, you know, uh, a higher dimensional thing or whatever. Unvisualizable here, I just think he's using it in a very simple way of practically speaking, the software we want to build is so complex that the kinds of visualizations we're capable of making are just underpowered for what we want to do. And one answer for that, that I think is kind of obvious in his quotes here, is just to change the way we make software. So he talks about like, you know, you could make a make a thing talking about namespace relationships. Like that is clearly not S essential, right? We don't need namespace relationships. So I, I think that's, this is really him being practically minded saying in the next decade, you're not going to see people visualize large software systems comprehensively. These things are not going to really change in the next decade. I think he's kind of right about that. Just wrong about the, the bigger picture, unless his argument could also be used for land and maps, which he doesn't think it can. Right. Uh, so this is why at the beginning of our discussion, I brought up that like he's sort of inconsistent throughout this paper. Some sections, he's good at maintaining that framing that he sets up for us. The 10 years, industrial scale, factor of 10, single development. Sometimes he's really good at expressing his arguments in terms of those that, that intersection of framing devices. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he makes claims about things that transcend those framing devices. Like he says, inherently unvisualizable. And, and he, I think like 
that first sentence, software is invisible and unvisualizable, is so definitive and so, and then like every sentence of this paragraph, or at least the first two sentences, uh, or the first two sentence, the first sentences of the first two paragraphs, God, it'd be so much easier if this was spatial. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have to like, you know, write a indexing system to stuff. Uh, the reality of software is not inherently embedded in space. Like these things feel like universals that he believes independently of these framing devices. Mm-hmm. That's what sets me off so much about this paragraph is that it does it it feels like he's not just speaking within the bounds of the framing devices that he set up, but that he wants to say, you know, and 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 in the uh, in either later sections of this or in the refired, I can't remember, he does specifically dunk on visual programming as a form of snake oil that people are peddling in the mid 80s that would be a silver bullet and he he's setting this up as a like no it's not just that your particular um, visual programming ideas are not gonna cut it he's saying like visual programming as a thing is a bad idea and here's why in a way that's not bounded to 10 years not bounded to 10x but just like if you think visual programming is going to be a thing, you're out to lunch. Like, I, I really think he's trying to make a much stronger claim than just the framing devices would permit. And I'm I'm basing that not just on this paragraph. I'm basing that on other things that he said elsewhere, too. So, uh, yeah, but in some ways he predicts dynamic land. So, yeah, right. Like, that's that's the thing is he like, I think this is cutting off his nose to spite his face. I think that he is wrong about software being invisible and unvisualizable unless you caveat it a whole bunch. Yes. Um, I think he's wrong about software not being embedded in space, but I'm saying Jimmy would win that argument because <laughs> reasons. So so this is what I this is what I actually I kind of this is why I think I had a similar you know, history of reading this paper as you did, right? Mm-hmm. But I started with Tar Pit and learned about this paper after reading Tar Pit. Yeah, same. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and this is out of the Tar Pit by like Ben Mosley and somebody, just because we've mentioned it a few times. We'll do yeah. it next time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Ivan does not want to do it next time. We'll see. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I loved that paper when I read it. I have changed in my feelings and this is kind of the opposite. Like, I think... If we keep his implicit frame in mind about practicality, right, um, I think this this is really getting at some things that instead of thinking of them as essence here, he really just means these are the things that are too hard to tackle. Mm-hmm. These are the things that are going to take longer than a decade to really have a research program that really makes this practical and beneficial for us to get rid of. If if we take that here and we don't take his language so strongly, because he does make a lot of strong language, and he does that in contradictory ways, right? He says conformity is essential, but it's also not necessary, which, like, there's such a thing as accidental necessity, which is what he means here, but, like, whatever. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I've been trying to resist that term, but I had to say uh. it. Uh, so accidental necessity, really easy. The past is not necessary, but given the present, it is accidentally necessary, right? We can't now go change it. 
Is this meant to get around the um, the opposition to the idea of essential and accident that comes from needing things to exist before you can talk about them having essential and accidental properties? Is existence an accidental necessity? Wow. See, you're much better philosopher than you think. I read plato.stanford.edu. This is a, I mean, yeah. so this is a big debate on like, uh, does... Does, does anything have existence as its essence, right? And that's that's yeah. the claim about God. Paragraph one, when you Google essence versus accident, go do it. Uh-huh. Go read that. Yeah, God has uh, an existence as his essence was the argument, right? Mm-hmm. And only God has existence as his essence. Yes. And Kant comes along and says that accident is or existence is not a property, so they can't have it essentially. But then we're getting into like how do properties work? And anyways, I'm not going to get into all of that. <laughs> Though you would love to. But yes, there's some things about that. But accidental uh, necessity is really more about uh, free will. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and it's it's like weird, you know, people will say, well, I can't change the past, so how could I have free will? Because in order to have free will, I'd have to have decided differently. And if we look at any moment, I can't decide differently at that point because the past determined, you know, et cetera. So that's accidental necessity. And that's really what he means. If we take, uh, that's how I took like conformity. It's not essential in the high-minded way. It's accidentally necessary. Given where we are in history, given how computers are development, given the market, there's no changing it now. That's kind of the idea. So I think we should move on past invisibility, though. And we'll probably come back to it. And do an attack action so that our invisibility is gone. Ah, boo. Uh, (laughs) You can't firewall cloaked, Jimmy. (laughs) You as the world's biggest Star Trek fan should know. You can't Uh, firewall cloaked. Yeah, sorry. I was making a Pathfinder D&D reference. Uh, All right. So we have past breakthroughs solved accidental difficulties. Mm-hmm. And I'll list them here, and if we want to talk about them, we can. But I, I think he's kind of right here, uh, that there were a bunch of accidental things that we didn't need to be doing that weren't the essence, and there were things that helped us solve them. So first is high-level languages, yes. time-sharing, yeah, unified of. programming environments. Mm-hmm. These are all things that didn't necessarily attack the essence They focused on all the accidental properties, all the things we shouldn't have to do, and gave us a better way of dealing with them. Now, he makes claims in here about how much they got rid of and how much they can continue to get rid of. I'm bracketing off that for a second. Just the general claim. High-level languages are great, but they're not uh, really changing the fundamentals of what we have to do. We still have to do those things. We just have a better way of doing them. Time-sharing, you know... Uh, he doesn't even have in mind here. I think he means like actual like time sharing on a mainframe. Yes. Not like, you know, program switching on your own personal computer. Cause he mentions later, like personal computers, workstations. I think he yeah. calls this them. is 86, right? So we're really early in the PC revolution at this point. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. He's definitely so, talking about time sharing on mainframes, which like makes perfect sense. Like being able to have time sharing and you don't have one dedicated computer. That was definitely not an essential thing. You know, it's nice to have now and it definitely makes you more productive. And then unified programming environments, uh, was a little weird for me. I don't know exactly what they mean in 86, but it seems like your compiler and library and standard library all come together. And, uh, oh yeah, he mentions Unix and, and Interlisp. So that sort of thing. That makes sense. Yeah. So that 
thing. I, I, it's just weird for me to call unified programming environments Unix and Interlisp. Like those feel like the opposites of <laughs> integrated to me, but I get it. They are enemies, but they are addressing the same issue. I'll, I'll read a quick quote here. They attack the accidental difficulties of using programs together by providing integrated libraries, unified file formats, and piles and filters. I'm pretty sure piles is an OCR. <laughs> <laughs> files. files and filters, maybe? Files and folders? <laughs> I don't know what what yeah, it is. I but, wonder if files yeah. and folders. Yeah, yeah piles and filters. Piles <laughs> and filters. So Unix and Interlisp um, uh, as pile-oriented programming environments did help. Um, as, as opposed, I love that idea. Pile-oriented, like instead of folders and files, we just have piles of garbage. Yep, I love it. Yep, that's my way of programming. Sure. <laughs> <sighs> uh. But it, I think it's the idea of like having a nice, like dedicated editor with facilities to assist you in the act of programming that are like mm-hmm. in software, right? Like, um, like for instance, having like an IDE, right? Like he says, this breakthrough in turn stimulated the development of whole tool benches since each new tool could be applied to any programs by using the standard formats. Yeah. So it's like, instead of purpose building your, your software directly against the machine, you now have other software that exists that helps you build your new software. And that other software, its whole purpose is to help you with the act of building software. That is a a, a thing that we had to invent at one point. We had to come up with, with that. And so now that we have that, that has helped us solve accidental difficulties, which I, I can't remember if he says it in this paper or if it's in one of the other things I read. But he did say that like at the advent of, of programming as we know it, um, accidental aspects of programming dominated Mm -hmm. the essential vastly. And so we did see 10x improvements several times over. And it's by the 1980s, the mid 1980s, that he feels like the rate of progress is slowing. And so that's Mm -hmm. why he's worried now is because taking the long view in the past, we had rapid improvement. Now we have improvement slowing in the future. It looks like it's going to slow even more. And in fact, that's what he did think in in years since he did think that progress did slow even further. And that despite all that Moore's law held, and that gets us back to earlier, this is, you know, a software uh, engineer feeling envy of hardware engineers and their, you know, clockwork progress in, in doubling every 18 months. Yeah, not anymore, though. They're in the same boat as us. Well, it depends. I, I'm pretty sure Moore's law holds if you just count transistor density. Not clock yeah. speeds, not MIPS. Brian Cantrell has a great talk on on Moore's Law here where he goes through the different meanings you could have. And yeah. I don't know, I buy his analysis that it was it was not just that. It was also about cost. It was an economic yeah. thing, you know, yeah. et cetera. But, it's, uh, yeah, as long as you keep moving the goalposts, you can maintain Moore's Law forever. Exactly, right? Like, it's like, eh, it feels a little... Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend that talk. Uh, it's... It's uh, it's really good at breaking down kind of the history there. It'll be in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Message to future Jimmy and Ivan. Make sure we put it in the show notes. Uh, I mean, Brian Cantrell talks are pretty easy to find, but All right. um, no more to give. I feel like is the title something like that. I don't know. Cool. It's some pun. Anyways, um, so yeah, so we got we got these three here, and he kind of just gives us a general like lay of the land here, and then kind of talks about how well they ha- they're going to do in the future. 
What are the hopes for the future? Or do you not see it as that way? I, I, so what I, what I would say is we have a section where we've got these three examples of things in the past that have been like silver bullets. High-level mm -hmm. languages, time-sharing, and unified programming environments were silver bullets in his view. That's the implication. Next, he's going to list a bunch of things that seem like, or some people would argue that they are silver bullets that have yet to be fired or are in the process of flying out of the barrel of the gun in super slow motion or whatever you want to use <laughs> for this metaphor, um, functional programming. He, he says, <laughs> you know, here are some things that are currently being suggested as likely to cause a 10x improvement, let's look at them and see whether or not that seems true. Let's look at these and see, are these silver bullets, yes or no? So the first is ADA and other high-level language advancements, which just like already, I mean, it being ADA as the example, does kind of, uh, you know, feel funny because... Yeah, it, it definitely was not the thing that, like, ushered in a silver bullet. He was right about that one. Uh, yeah, we have the benefit of history here. This is our, our <laughs> ability to jump in and out of framing is going to make this this part of the discussion very entertaining. Um, also, kind of um, speaking of moving the goalposts, right? One of the framing devices is there is no single development. So in the previous section, he says high-level languages and then compares that against ADA and other high-level language advances. This feels unfair. This feels like high-level languages were, a, you know, a silver bullet, but incremental improvements to existing high-level languages, nah, that's not going to... It's like those are two different scales of thing. Mm -hmm. Saying, yeah, high-level language advances, nah, is like not fair to compare that against high level languages as an entire concept and all the you know the the benefit of specific high level languages that we had up until this point it, it just feels like like a not a category error but like an error of scale so that bugs me a little bit but yeah so let's let's get into what he has to say about ada and other high level language advances i think i'll say this i think the reason he's doing it is cuz He's considering high-level languages of the same level that ADA, that that they're currently at, and he thinks ADA is of that same level, just might be better. And he later considers things that you could call higher-level languages, like object-oriented programming and expert systems. That might be these like next generation or automatic programming. So I think he here he is using high level language in a like a more specialized way, whereas we just mean like the whole hierarchy of them. Oh, but that's that's what I mean is the unfairness. That's this is a this is a that's uh, fine. Okay, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, so I mean he's yeah I think maybe it's a little unfair, but he just says like uh you know. It's just another high-level language, and uh, the biggest benefit came from a transition from low-level to high-level, and we're not going to see a big, huge payoff uh, from just adding better high-level language constructs. And I think he's right. Yeah, and, and that's why I think it's unfair, is because the previous section, he says the transition from low-level to high-level is a silver bullet, and it's like... But there are people who still believe like just that next increment on high level yeah makes such a huge difference i think and we can all agree those people are wrong 
<laughs> I mean, I can see when you're, so when I was, you know, if we look at this, not at the industrial scale, we look at it personally and we try to abstract out, I am 10 X faster at coding enclosure than I am in Java. Mm-hmm. Right. I can get things done, the same problem done 10 X faster. And if you try to extrapolate from that, and I, I spent a good chunk of time in both of those languages, just to be clear. But I consider them at different levels of abstraction here. Um, so it's not familiarity. It's just the the expressiveness I have in both. Um, and maybe Java ain't made it better, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Doesn't matter the details here. But you could try to extrapolate out from that to the industrial scale and say, if I'm 10x more productive, given these two levels of languages, why wouldn't the whole system, if everyone did this, be 10x more productive? And I think that's actually where it fails, right? Is this, it it doesn't matter your individual productivity, not everyone's going to be like that. But also, even if everyone were like that, that wouldn't result in the whole system being 10x better. Yeah, yeah. I've worked at closure shops. They were not 10x more productive. Than, than equivalent Java shops. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and just to drill into why a little bit, do you think that's because when you're on a team and thinking about it at like a larger kind of industrial scale, the cost of development, not financial cost, but just costs, uh, you know, broadly are dominated by factors that aren't attacked by closure versus Java? Yeah. I mean, to, you know, show my hand a little bit here. I think he's very wrong about the, at least the implicit assumption about how much time is spent in accidental complexity. I think it's most of it, but most of that accidental complexity is not coding. It's management processes, it's human factors, it's, uh, you know, it's not about the, the essence of the problem and it's all about these other factors. And that's why you'll see like small, you know, a single programmer who can go off and build an entire language way faster than this company did or whatever. Yeah. It's because you got rid of all those factors. Yeah. And I think he he suggests some of this in Mythical Man Month, which we considered doing today but didn't get into cuz this yeah, I, you know, which is good cuz we yeah, already yeah. have a lot to say here. Yeah, yeah. So the the last thing about this uh ada and other high level language advances the the last sentence of that section i just want to read it and say something about it ada's greatest contribution will be that switching to it occasioned training programmers in modern software design techniques and i like that um because i don't personally know anything about ada i mean i'm familiar with it as a historical you know it's a name that comes up when you look at wikipedia programming languages you know they all say influenced by ada so i'm sure it did some cool shit Um, But I love the idea that he is allowing for some of these advances that he's considering to not have the benefits that they purport to have, but to have benefits that are kind of consequential. So like one thing that that made me think of is, you know, Clojure and Haskell in the last decade and a half have had a heyday. um, And I think that they're impact has been positive, but I don't think it's been positive because more people are using Clojure and Haskell. I think it's been positive because more people are aware of like the great things that we can learn from thinking about functional programming and that that way of conceiving of software, whether you use Clojure, Haskell, functional programming, you know, any of it, 
just going through that exercise of thinking about software in that different way um, makes you a better programmer. And I, I like that he sort of at least touched on that. Um, and he does it as kind of a diss, but whatever. I think the sentiment is still good and it, it reinforces the fact that he's not just, even though this whole section is just talking about like, technical aspects of adopting ADA and whether, you know, advances in hardware will allow us the cheap MIPS to pay for the compiling costs. You know, he gets really into the into the nitty gritty on that. But at the end, he zooms back out and says, hey, I'm willing to look at this very holistically and see is this thing going to make us 10x better for any reason, not just because it's a better programming language, but because it might help us be better thinkers about software. So I liked that. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So object-oriented programming. I don't, I don't think there's a lot to say here. Well, uh, did it bring about a 10x improvement between 1986 and 1996? Uh, I was too young to say for sure, but my bet would be no. I think it brought about 10x improvements in some ways that maybe Brooks wouldn't care about. For instance, the the standardization on Java as like the industrial programming language in the early 90s as like the way that if you were at a software shop with 500 employees, it would be a Java shop. Java was 95? Oh, God damn it. All right, late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> no. But okay, so, so ignore, the, ignore the 10-year limit, but I think Java, like Java had a, a period where it became the lingua franca it became the like the language you would have to learn if you were going to go do programming at an industrial scale and i think that that enabled a whole bunch of big software projects to be written that may otherwise not have been written or not written in the same way like i feel like it's sort of like c plus plus right so yeah i could say the same about c plus plus c plus plus enabled so much software to be written that if you took c plus plus away um, sure, maybe something else would have filled the same vacuum, but we needed something to fill a vacuum there. And I think like OO did that. Could have been FP, right? It could have been, you know, probably not prologue or, or logic programming or concatenative programming, but we need something to facilitate the industrial revolution of the early internet era. And I think OO was that. So really, though, you would say that the thing, the singular thing, would have been a management technique of standardization. Yeah, sure. Yep. And and it happened, to, and, and standardization on a particular programming practice facilitated by particular languages. But really a particular programming language. Well, yes, a practice facilitated by the language. So like OO, I consider a practice. I don't consider it. Like you can uh-huh, say it's yeah, a language yeah. feature. It, it, are there classes? Is there sub classing whatever but but do you think the the conformity would have been just as good in c oo as in java oo and brought about the same well i think i think c oo is a is a contradiction of terms but you you can do oo and c oh i know but like uh i, I don't know that anybody was doing oo and c in the 90s i think that's yeah a, yeah i'm just saying counterfactually you think that it could have been the same I'm just trying um, to get where, what you think is the benefit here of the OO. I guess what I mean is, uh, like, he in 86 is saying there are a lot of people coming out with these things and saying, do this, and it will enable you to be so much more productive. 
And OO, I think, got uptake in the way that some of these other things didn't. And so whether or not OO led to a specific 10x improvement as he was, you know, claiming it wouldn't is irrelevant to me. I think it did, though, um, it did serve as like the vehicle upon which a whole bunch of early Internet stuff was conveyed. Yeah, I I wonder one thing he doesn't mention in here that might be uh, something some people would claim uh, kind of related to the job aspect here would be garbage collection. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. Right. And, yeah. and, and not just like the first order effects of garbage collection, but like the second order of making it easier to have interoperable libraries because you don't have to worry about, I mean, that's why C doesn't have that sort of like package ecosystem, yeah. Yeah. right? Is because you can't, you can't have exact clear instructions on who owns what, right? And why Rust has had such a, a big thing, despite not having garbage collection, it has clarity on, on ownership. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so that would be an interesting one. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, OO, I'm of lots of opinions on it. Um, you know, I think he's right in trying to say that the the benefits people think you're going to get out of it probably won't be an order of magnitude mm-hmm. in the next decade in his framing, right? His narrow framing, the industrial complex will not get an order of magnitude more reliable and productive and simple by OO. Yeah. Artificial intelligence. The one that 10 years ago, we would have been like, yep, he was totally right. Yeah. Uh, even ignoring his decade limit and today might be a little fuzzier on. Yeah. Like he's definitely wrong timeline wise, but in terms of is AI as, you know, not AGI, but just AI, mm-hmm. um, something that will enable at some point a 10x improvement within a decade? Maybe. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I loved this sentence from this section. I have a hard time seeing how image recognition, for example, will make any appreciable difference in programming practice. <laughs> Dynamic land, <laughs> baby. We have, uh, we have a, a, an exciting, cool, interesting programming model that will make an appreciable difference in programming practice, at least for the people who use it in the ways that they use it. That depends on image recognition, which at the time in the mid 80s was what you thought of when you thought of AI, right? It was image recognition. It was like speech generation. It was like those kind of things where it's just fancy algorithms, right? Because that's the, the, the constant critique of AI is it's, oh, once you know how it works, it's not magic. It's just, you know, science. Mm-hmm. AI is anything that is slightly too complicated for a, a lay programmer to explain. Um, <laughs> And then also this section has, um, you know, the great quote, the hard thing about building software is deciding what to say, not saying it. No facilitation of expression can give more than marginal gains. So he's saying like, you know, having an AI to do the programming for you won't help make building software easier because you still have to decide what to say, what to tell that AI to do. And it's funny because at the time they weren't really doing it, but right now we're like, testing that idea can you get better at building software by having an ai that can do all the mechanical work of writing the code and knowing what functions to put where and what to name variables and all that kind of stuff and all you have to do is say like write me a program that given a json array of genders and ethnicities will decide whether somebody's a good scientist or not (laughs) that (laughs) that right 
Maybe uh, you don't know this one, Jimmy. That's a that's a, a real. No, I saw that. I yeah. mean, the bias in these systems is yeah. uh, pretty pretty awful. Yeah. Yep. So, but the hard thing about building software is deciding what to say, not saying it. I think that example, like I bring that up as a kind of a like shot in the ribs of of current AI, but it is it is illustrative of the point that like you discover that systematic bias by thinking long and hard about what to say and what to do to kind of probe the AI system into giving you a satisfactory result, like prompt engineering and prompt design and prompt artistry. Like that is a thing now that wasn't a thing that pretty much anybody other than like Gray Crawford and a couple of other people I know of were doing, you know, two years ago. And now everybody's thinking about that. And it, it's it's very interesting to me that this is something Brooks was thinking about and saying, man, Peshaw. And now it's like, well, Peshaw. So I will go ahead and make a prediction here, a 10-year prediction. And if we Ooh. get our prediction episode, yeah. I will stick by this one. If we take the narrow frame of this essay, singular thing, next decade, 10x cost reduction on an industrial scale, I will say AI won't accomplish that. Oh, all right. Uh, and, and, and the reason I'm saying this is not because I don't think, again, that individually, because I've done some things that were a hundred, a thousand X faster than I could have done them without chat GPT. I translated some code, you know, between languages that I would have had to have, it would have taken me way longer than just telling chat GPT to do it. I just, again, I think it's those human factors that dominate. I think it's the market factors that dominate. It's all of those other things that are really the dominant cost. And the programming stuff here is not really the, the complicated bit. Uh, well, it might be the complicated bit, but it's not the costing bit. So that's what I, why I'm saying that. Now, does that mean I don't think there's going to be anyone who ever does 10x more because of these things? Definitely not. There's going to be someone running a small business that does AI, uses AI for it and makes tons of money doing it. No question in my mind. It's just, is this going to happen at the, the industry scale? And I say no, because I think it's manu- managerial things that we have to solve in order to have that effect. Yeah, I would agree with you just because I think a 10x improvement in the you know amount of software that we can produce, the amount of quality software we can produce for a given level of budget I don't know that we need 10x more software to exist than what we currently have. We already have so much software. And I think the thing we're struggling with is, is that software any good? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how AI would help us get a 10x improvement in the quality of software that we're writing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely with you on the, I'm going to predict 10 years AI. AI software generation, I think it's going to get a whole lot better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, it's going to be an awesome tool, and I'm yeah. really excited for it, personally. Like, I'm excited to use it. Yeah. Because um, there's all sorts of things that, like, it can do that would be great for me not to have to do, and it helped me build some software that I want to build. Uh, but, yeah, I just think it, this is uh, the bigger question of, like, the industry and cost coming down overall. That's the thing I just am, don't think. 
And just to put some ice water on everybody, Siri is 10 years old, right? And how much better is Siri today than Siri was 10 years ago? And that was one of those cases of, you know, it's an AI. It's, you know, it's used to be what we would think of as like talking computer. Wow, it's an intelligent living uh, artificial entity that you can converse with and ask it what temperature your biscuits are at. Or Hard, flat, and unleavened. But... It's not that much better now than it was 10 years ago. So we may not see much more improvement on code generation, you know, beyond what we currently have. I think we will. But my one year prediction would be that these large language models get pretty darn good at pumping out some code translations. All right. I think we should go a little faster through these next, even though there's a lot to say. Yeah, they're not as interesting. They're... Yeah, so... Expert systems, which I have actually worked on some stuff that's like expert system things. They're cool. They have their niche use cases. He imagined it as a way to like an advice giver for programmers, which is kind of what these chat GPT things can kind of mm-hmm. be now, uh, which was cool. Uh, but he was right. They didn't make an order of magnitude difference. And we kind of ignore expert systems now. Uh, if you don't know what an expert system is, it's a bunch of rules put all together and they can fire in any order. And if you look at Age of Empires 2 uh, AI, it was like an expert system. Uh, the whole way it worked was was exactly these sorts of expert system setups. So if you hear rules engine, it's kind of like an expert system sort of thing. Right. Following one, automatic programming, where automatic is in scare quotes. Um, nice, curly, well-typeset square, scare quotes, but scare quotes, all the same. You give it a specification, it gives you the program. Which, again, chat GBT is probably the best thing we have for doing that right now. Like, there are, like, some like, systems that will try to do it or whatever. I, I, again, I don't think this... I think he was right, but in the time frame, definitely didn't. And I think probably today, if you don't, include AI, you know, large language models, probably true that it's not going to be that much different, but also like, I don't, again, I just don't think it's going to make a big difference at scale. I gave a local talk on this idea uh, before of like programs that write themselves and like Idris has some really cool capabilities where you can like give it some types and it will find programs that fit the types. And it's actually pretty darn cool. I was able to write a like monadic parser just by like following Idris's explanations, even though I did not understand what I was doing. It was just like, oh, pattern match here, pattern match there, automatically fill in that clause. And like, I only had to fill in like a few things and my choices were really constrained. So mm-hmm. it's, it, there's some cool stuff there, but again, we're acting for silver bullets, not cool things that fun are fun to explore. We're going to skip the next one for a no. second, <laughs> for a second, what? just so we can finish out the, the details. All right. Program verification, uh, you know, Proving our programs, I think he was right. It didn't make a big difference. And today, everyone agrees. Like, it's, there's, <laughs> well, they do. That it's complicated to verify programs. And even if it's useful, it's not something that everyone's going to do on every single program. And so, it, you know, it's going to be on these, like, these very important programs that are going to get this verification done. It's for something that is so useless at the industrial scale and has has been so you know ignored maybe maligned if you ask me what i think about it i would malign it for something that is so uh you know 
so useless in practice. This one in particular gets so much attention and activity. Uh, and I just have highlighted in green, I do not believe we will find the magic here. Is that, <laughs> that especially uh, after the previous section, which we'll come back to, makes me so happy. It's like, yeah, I agree with, you know, I like the things that reinforce my priors. Yeah. And environments and tools, mm -hmm. I think he gives less of a... I, I think this is actually more important than he says. Like yes. he even mentions here, perhaps the biggest gain yet to be realized in the programming environment is the use of integrated database systems. I think that's great. Yeah, uh, but I actually think this like is not explicitly mentioning, but really you could think about this like Git, right? Mm -hmm. While it's mm -hmm. not all of the details, right? Like source control here. Yep might be uh, a silver bullet at some point or other. And I will say, I think it, it was. I don't know when that time period is. Yeah. But I, my first job, we had a really terrible source control system, uh, so bad that we basically didn't have one at times for certain projects. And then like our sequel wasn't source controlled. And like having proper source control on real projects when I got to switch to Git there it was a huge difference. I mean, just massive. The amount of time we wasted coordinating these sorts of things, I do think actually for that group was an order of magnitude difference in productivity. So um, workstations, and by that basically personal computers, I think that probably actually was an order of magnitude, but I wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah, like uh, there's, a, there's a great quip in the middle of this. Well, how many MIPS can one use fruitfully? <laughs> and I have the comment, all of them. <laughs> I, yeah, like if you look at the last 40 years, right, computers are unbelievably better than they used to be. And are programmers using that power? Absolutely, yes. Are we using it in service of writing more reliable, dependable programs, writing them faster, doing that kind of industrial scale stuff? arguably yes like you just said git right like that kind of source control is enabled by ubiquitous networking and plentiful storage and you know fast disks and all that sort of stuff right like like faster better computers do we use every last flop on our machines in service of writing great programs no a lot of the you know computing power that we use is uh, needed because the problems we're being asked to solve are much bigger than they used to be um, in terms of their demand on computing resources, right? Like a lot of, you know, game developers use a lot of their computing power because they're making a game and games demand a lot of computing power. But I, I do see programming benefiting from improvements in hardware. And if for nothing else, right, like our screens are bigger and have more pixels and can display colors. And, you know, if, if we get to talk about visual programming at some point, um, yes, advent in computing power is a really important enabling factor in that in that uh, in that particular area. So, so yeah, we can go back to the section I skipped. Hooray! Which is graphical programming. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll start. Yes, please. Since I have the most opinions on this topic of between the two of us, I have almost nothing highlighted. So you might. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, I think the most interesting thing here actually is, uh, that this is not an argument 
against it in general. It's an argument against it at the time. Yeah. Oh, of course. Given yeah. the technological limitations that existed. Uh, so, for example, we see uh, the screens of today are too small in pixels to show both the scope and the resolution of any serious detailed software diagram. So, first off, like it's the assumption that if you're doing visual things, you're having to show a diagram, right? Yeah. Uh, which is like not a good assumption. Um, uh, why not? Um, di- dynamic land. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yep. But also that you have to be on screens, which like at the time, of course, makes sense. But if we're talking about removing the frame for a second. Yeah. Yes. We know that that's not necessarily the case. Right. Um, But I, I, yeah, I think there's nothing essential in the the big way about saying that visual programming has to be a diagram. Right. Yeah. Of these detailed aspects. I think that you can do things that are visual that are not diagrams. That's all I'm saying. In fact, I think one way of reading this paper that I actually think is really interesting is all the things he points out of like problems you can't solve or whatever. If you just take those as like, that is the limiting factor. And if we just attack that problem, we could get 10x is really interesting because like conformity, right? If we go back to that where he says we have to conform to these existing interfaces. Well, if we just say, no, that's not essential. We don't have to conform to them. Let me go make, you know, the chatting, the talking with aliens. Like I can, you know, negotiate. We could get a 10 X improvement. I think for sure, actually, in these sorts of things, right? Because so many of these human factors are around negotiations of interface, et cetera. And, and here you could see dynamic land, right? Oh, the screens are too small. Well, that's still true today for the kinds of things that we want to do in dynamic land. So we get rid of the screens, Right? Like, if you take all of these constraints that he puts out and just say, yeah, that's the thing I'm going to get rid of, I think you actually get a plan for how to have a 10x improvement that's not actually inaccurate. Or if not a 10x improvement, a cool new way of programming. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... 10x cooler. Yeah, yes. Which yeah. is all I care about. Yeah. Um, 10x more beautiful programs, right? Yeah where beauty doesn't mean some narrow thing, but, you know, whatever we want it to mean. Yeah. And just to finish on this graphical programming thing where, I mean, for the most part, I agree with what he says, given the framing. There's a sentence where he says, Nothing even convincing. Green. Much less exciting. Pink. Has emerged from such efforts. Yellow, meaning, yeah, we can talk about it. And then pink. I am persuaded that nothing will. Oh, you, you unimaginative spoil sport. Yeah, I am persuaded that nothing will emerge from graphical programming. Uh, this, this is where I get more of that idea that Brooks just really doesn't think graphical programming is ever going to be a thing. Mm-hmm. You're right. He does think that. None of the other sections, he so definitively says this is not it this is the one area where he's like it's not going to be visual it's not going to be graphical and he's like he he says frame get out of the room i need to to say visual programming is never going anywhere um i I could make a, a a claim about graphical programming that i think you would agree with that's a negative one sure. i think is what he actually thinks but doesn't say Mm-hmm. No singular static representation of a program is ever going to be the answer for graphical programming. I 
can agree with that, but I also could interpret that in ways that I wouldn't agree with. So that's not interesting. <laughs> but, so, we'll but really, that. he's just looking at the static nature of all of these things. I think that's his biggest problem. And when that's why I say when he refers to space, he really means and not time, right? Yeah. Because like, if you think about all the interesting systems, the one that if I keep if I bring up on the podcast here, you end up doing weird things. I edited it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one, the one that shall not be named. Uh, the project that shall not be named thinks about time in in a you know interesting way. Dynamic land, I think, also yeah. while it abstracts away time in the programming system, it allows time in the real world because it lets the real world go into the computation, right? And so I think that these are the kind of interesting ideas that need to be done is they have to go beyond just a diagram, a static diagram of something. Um, And what he might have is that sort of like bias that one gets when they've been at war with a country for their entire childhood and their whole life. And, you know, he's been beating back charlatan snake oil peddlers who are claiming visual programming is going to be the revolution for his entire career. And so he's so resoundly convinced not only that it is not a 10-year possibility, but that it's not a possibility at all. Mm -hmm. And maybe if he were, you know, a young person today looking at what we've done with computers in the time since, it may be something where he wouldn't have developed that particular perspective and that uh with any luck you know all of this arguing over whether programming is going to be visual or not is going to seem really silly in a decade so yeah i don't know if i want to say decade on that that sounds like a prediction um (laughs) the last sentence of this section i i have highlighted just because it's interesting to think about he says because he's talking about, you know, some things can be visualized, some things can't be visualized. And he's comparing with VLSI, uh, Very Large System Integration. Is that what that stands for? Uh, but anyways, he's, he's like thinking about chip design, right? And he says, a chip design is a layered two-dimensional object whose geometry reflects its essence. A software system is not. Here he's just trying to repeat the same thing, that software is not space essentially space-based yeah which i essentially disagree with <laughs> so, uh, uh, oh, we could get into that but i don't think we need to no yes all right so graphical programming these are the things he thinks are not gonna make a big difference and then he gives us a list of things he thinks might mm-hmm. uh promising attacks on the conceptual essence. So these are the things he thinks get beyond the accidental properties and really get at the essence. And this is why I found, like once I finally, multiple readings of this paper made this so clear because I had the high-minded idea of essence. And then you see these and you're like, oh no, he means very practical essence here Mm -hmm. because he's got buy versus build, right? Here's one of the things, we'll get into the topics, but I just want to read the headings. Uh, and then we got requirements, refinement, and rapid prototyping. Uh, and then we got incremental development, grow, not build software. And then we got great designers. And these are all the things that could potentially really attack the essence of the problem and get us a 10x improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any, I think buy versus build, it's kind of obvious, but really what happened here was open source software. Yeah. Uh, by 95 or 96 or whatever, don't know the state of that. But 
somewhere between 86 and now, buy versus build did bring about, I would say, at least 10x when you think about things like NPM, right? Yeah. And like rails, right? What yep. rails and 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 the ecosystem of off-the-shelf modules that you can just grab to do any particular kind of job like that had a huge impact on conformity, right? Mm-hmm. Like I need to use AWS uh, I don't need to learn the AWS APIs. I just go grab their their Ruby gem for AWS, and it's it's written to fit mm-hmm. the kind of software that you're going to write from Ruby to use AWS. Um, it, it, like uh, this one, yeah, ten years, ten x, maybe not, but huge uh, change to the way that software is written. And and yet, the only way to evaluate that is on the counterfactual thing of, had I written the software without NPM, would it have cost me 10x more, right? Not, did costs actually get reduced 10x, and did we stop having budget problems, and did we stop having schedule overruns, right? I think this is the problem with the, the original framing is, we always change what kind of software we build in response to these 10x improvements, if they are there, right? So, uh, but I think, yeah. I mean, he's he's absolutely right here that interchangeable packages, off-the-shelf packages, which he thought you'd have to buy, which you didn't, uh, they're just free, make a huge difference, right? Like, I mean, I think this is absolutely spot on. The details are a little, you know, of the time, uh, but in terms of overall, if we ignore the 10-year frame, he's right. It, it mm-hmm. does make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um requirements refinement and rapid prototyping i don't have anything highlighted here i've got i've got a bunch of green stuff just because i think this is speaking once again to stuff that pertains if not is identical to the theory building uh thoughts and some of the stuff we talked about earlier when talking about ai like it is there is he's feeling a need for some kind of solution to the problem of just saying what do you want to do right the hardest single part of building a software system is deciding precisely what to build mm-hmm. so if there is something that comes along that makes that easier to do or makes that faster or cheaper or you know blue sky you know pipe dream lets clients do it for themselves instead of needing to work with a software engineer for as much as was needed at the time like that would have been a 10x they could have been transformative and I think some of the pain that he felt in this section was addressed by other things. Like he says, a prototype software system is one that simulates the important interfaces and performs the main functions of the intended system while not being necessarily bound by the same hardware, speed, size, or cost constraints. And so, like, that's one way of solving, like, oh, you need real software engineers because they can they can build what you need within known speed, size, and cost limits. And as time went on, budgets got bigger, computers got more powerful and, and you know, more widely distributed. And so it's sort of like that problem was solved not by making better programming systems, but by just the things we're programming in the context of got much more permissive. Yeah, I think you can kind of recast this for today and, and just talk about scale. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Here's the prototype system that does everything you wanted, but not at the scale you expected. Right. Yeah. I've built lots of systems like that where it's like, yeah, this operates on a hundred thousand rows of data rather than f- billions. Yeah. Right. That sort of thing. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think these things are accurate. Like prototypes are really cool. I don't know if they're 10 X improvement in at an industrial scale, blah, blah, blah. But like prototyping definitely is a practice that we should do and is good to do and is helpful. Yeah. And the kind of things that he meant by prototype at the time are things that we, um, like he says, prototypes typically perform the mainline tasks of the application, but make no attempt to handle the exceptions, respond correctly to invalid inputs, abort cleanly, etc. Well, we have Rails. Rails handles our exceptions, responds correctly to invalid inputs, aborts cleanly. It handles our security concerns for the most part. Make sure you don't get, you know, SQL injected because you passed unsanitized input into your query, right? Like a lot of the things that you would have to attend to as a working programmer in the mid 80s, if you're building a similar kind of thing, like a CRUD app these days, you'll use a Rails or a Django or one of those kind of things to... Um, take care of a lot of those concerns for you that like put you on rails and he didn't have that at the time and so i think it's interesting that now it's like just build what he would have thought of as the prototype and you can ship that so yeah not within his framing but definitely something that we've seen change yeah incremental development versus like a big waterfall model I, I this is a hard thing for me to say if it really made a 10x improvement because it also that model also came with a bunch of other baggage that like stopped you from having the improvement you could have had in and of itself maybe but as a factual historical matter it also brought on a bunch of like ceremony and annoying things that happened with it uh, but again we're I really think we're trying to be practical here and sadly it it came i we wanted the banana and it came with a gorilla right like that's that's what i think happened here i read this not as just being about methodology and about like agile and that sort of thing i read this as like in the 80s if you were ibm and you were hired by you know let's say uh let's say what's a, what's a 1980s company mit mit okay let's say <laughs> They had all sorts of things that they hired IBM for. I'm thinking like a MIT accounting system or Okay, sure. Yeah. Let's yeah. say let's say you were hired by some some big accounting firm to develop some software for them, right? Mm-hmm. Like you are hired to build uh, a system that runs on a mainframe and the mainframe gets installed at their office and there's terminals put around the building and whatever, whatever, whatever. Compared to mid 90s maybe late 90s maybe early 2000s where it's quite a bit different now where by the early 90s it's not you're putting a big mainframe in but rather you're packaging up a bunch of cds and mailing or delivering those and people are installing that on their pc stations at their desks and then by late 90s early 2000s it's no longer you're packaging up a bunch of cds necessarily oh maybe mid 2000s but you are now sending that software over the internet and you know mid 2000s late 2000s you no longer have to just ship that software and be done with it. And then updates are, okay, we got to ship out a whole new round of CDs. It's to update it, just download this update over the internet. And then nowadays, you know, um, like, you know, we, we CI and we ship to prod five times a day or whatever. It's now the software runs 
on somebody else's machine, you access it through a browser and it's not like you've installed anything and there's no single version. It's this living, constantly churning thing. And so we've seen this transformation from the software comes bundled with hardware that is delivered and installed once and is effectively, like you got to call it done when that happens, to this world where the software is never done and you're no longer buying or like commissioning software uh, you're not commissioning a custom installation and a custom machine with custom programming. You're not buying off-the-shelf software, but you are like leasing or renting or borrowing software that comes through the pipes and runs on machines you never see. And I think that gave us this grow, not build transformation. It just took a little longer than he thought it would. Yeah, I think you have put into the text something that's not in it. Uh, but I like your, your interpretation way better. I think he definitely meant like what we would call agile today. He cites, uh, this, a spiral model of software development and enhancement, which I have read. So maybe that colors my opinion of what the scope of this is, but I, I do agree if he meant as a service sort of stuff and shipping changes more regularly and small things, et cetera, and not just the development process before the big ship at the end. If he meant all of that, then I totally agree with you. It makes a big difference. I just think he had a more narrow vision of like, this is like inside until we get to the ship and then ship is different. Then the final section of this, I think this paper ends very strangely in my opinion, is great designers is the final thing he thinks can make a big difference for 10x improvement. And it's really weird that we don't get a concluding paragraph section anything here this whole like what will make a difference is kind of the conclusion yeah uh, we don't get a big picture other than like he thinks that great designers are actually the thing that's going to make such a big difference um, he says here great designs come from great designers and software construction is a creative process and so really i thought it was kind of remarkable because my 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 stereotype of Brooks is kind of Mr. Corporate, mm-hmm. right? Like very informed, very like reflective, but like he is caring about the corporate environment. And yet here, you know, he's talking about like these kind of more solo, not designed by committee projects uh, are way better and more beautiful and better designed. And he thinks that if we could get more great designers we could actually have a huge improvement in the industry in general. And that's not going to come from, you know, putting down a, a training program with some methodology, but actually like finding these people and helping bring them up and give them the support they need to make these great designs. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about this one? Um, I think, I think he is misplacing where the importance is. Uh, like, yes, I do think people can become better at software design and write great software, but they almost always do it absent, uh, certain business constraints and team setups and all of that. And I think you could take the same great designer and put all the constraints on them that you have in a work life that makes bad software and you wouldn't end up getting better software. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Like think small talk. That's one of his examples of, of a great 
piece of well-designed software. The constraints for Xerox Park making small talk are so different from the constraints of software products I've worked on that have been very poorly designed. But the the people there were were good people who knew what they were doing. It's just the constraints were very different. Yeah. I this section especially bothers me because it's sort of like the thing that we need to do is take a few special people and make sure that we recognize their specialness and like really, mm-hmm. you know, treasure those few special people. Mm-hmm. And I really don't like this this way of thinking about like some people are special and we need to identify those top designers as early as possible and then pull them out and put them on a different track from the cattle. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, I, yeah. Well, I mean, this actually comes back to the framing. So to get into the bad parts of Aristotle's essence and accident, right? Aristotle thought some people were essentially slaves was one of his examples, right? He thought that's just their essence. They are meant to be that, right? And so this accident and essence has been used in such terrible ways throughout history for like really racist ideas. And these ideas of like, well, this person is just essentially great at at being a designer, right? Kind of leak into this a little bit, yeah. right? I think that there's these ideas that like, you couldn't change that. Like they're just essentially that way and we have to identify them because it's not an accidental property of somebody. You couldn't teach somebody to be a great designer. They just have to be that, yeah. right? And I do think some of this thinking leaks in to, to this thing. I'm not claiming Brooks thinks those, those really strong things. I'm just saying, I think you see some of that still essence, which has been kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's a trope in our society, right? In general, not just in Brooks' thought, where we think of certain characteristics as essential. And there's a lot of modern day philosophers who want to get rid of that. Not all of them. Some people think, no, we can still use accident and essence without all these problematic notions, like Sally Hasslinger is a feminist who, who has that opinion. But you can see why people might be opposed to some of these ideas. Yeah, like it, it's definitely a, an embodiment of certain ways of thinking that I think dominated business of the era. So like, mm-hmm. just, just to read, I'll read what he's written and then I'll offer a counter. Um, so he's got four bullets that are sort of, here's the, some, just some quick hits. Cause he says space does not permit a lengthy discussion, but some steps are obvious for how to grow great designers. First bullet systematically identify top designers as early as possible. The best are often not the most experienced. So don't let experience kind of, you know, guide you to, to miss out on some diamonds in the rough. Then second, assign a career mentor to be responsible for the development of the prospect and keep a careful career file. Then third, devise and maintain a career development plan for each prospect, including carefully selected apprenticeships with top designers, episodes of advanced formal education, and short courses, all interspersed with solo design and technical leadership assignments. Then finally, provide opportunities for growing designers to interact with and stimulate each other. And so it's really like find deserving people and pour resources onto those individuals as opposed to find people who show a lot of promise and figure out what it was that got them to the point where they're showing so much promise and like Mm. reinforce that, right? Like if there's like 10% of people who are coming into your organization 
and are showing, you know, remarkable talent at a certain thing that does not, uh, you know, align with the amount of experience they have, right? They're coming in green, but they're doing really well. Why not go back upstream and look for how, where did those people come from and what got them there rather than taking, you know, all the people coming into your organization as just like an unchangeable fact of the world, right? There's going to be yeah. 10% of the people who come in are great. So let's make them greater rather than let's raise the number of people coming into our organization who are at that level of greatness. I don't know. I, I really don't like this this particular idea he's identifying something legitimate which is some people are better at doing this work than others but it's not because of who they are as people in some unchangeable way exactly it's not their essence yeah it grosses me out okay so we're at the end of the paper you know yeah. i'm curious about you know concluding thoughts i'll give mine like what Please. i yeah okay so like I have found the more we read these papers, the papers I enjoy the most, I also find very flawed. Mm -hmm. Like theory building, I think is a great paper that's also very flawed in its actual writing, right? The artifact itself had a lot of weird little turns of phrases, some bad arguments. I feel the same about this paper. We've kind of picked apart a lot of things that, that Brooks has said here. But honestly, I actually really had fun reading this paper. I really enjoyed it. I think it kind of gives me some some hope for my own things because I see the flaws in my own writings. I see the flaws in my own thoughts and I think, oh, well, it can't be good because it needs to be flawless. And these papers that have all these flaws are actually really fun to read. And I think that the thrust of the point can get across even when the details are kind of wrong. So I came into this kind of being pessimistic and thinking like, I'm just going to disagree with like everything he says. And while we can pick apart all these details, I think he's right. Like if we confine ourselves to one single development, we're gonna do the wrong thing and think we can like solve the whole world. And instead we need to think holistically. And while that's not explicit here, I think it is implicit in a good way where he wants to push us to look beyond just these basic things. I think even this bad designer thing is kind of getting at it. The designer can tackle a bunch of things all at once, not just have one technique to put forward. And so I, re I really liked that. And I really enjoyed this paper. And I definitely think if you've already read it, I think it is worth a reread and like a, a charitable reread kind of coming into it and looking for the good in it. Uh, the first time I read it, I liked it. The second time I read it, I hate read it. <laughs> and now reading it again, it's like, Depending on how much charity I want to give or afford, uh, it's a really enjoyable source of history and perspective and little tidbits of things that failed to pan out that might have failed to pan out just because they were put in the wrong crucible. Like there's a lot of ideas in here for things that totally failed right up until they didn't and it's you know they failed within his framing at his scale within his time frame within his weird limitations but you know things like open source and things like you know the way crud apps have taken off and the internet becoming a thing like there's been so many major developments in the world that have changed what kind of software we're writing and why we're writing it that 
it's wild that so many of these things that he looked at like played a part, had a role in some way or another. And so that kind of gives me optimism that if you don't look at any particular future of coding project, you don't look at any particular idea that somebody's suggesting for a way we could program better, but you instead take like one step back and just think about like, what is the delta that's that's setting up between the way we currently do things and what we could do instead? In the grand fullness of time, we will probably see that delta realized in some way, in some context, and to some extent. Like, it's it's funny that there's so many different things we could do, and I like feeling like that we're gonna get to do all of them at some point. So that that makes me really happy reading this and reflecting on it and, and thinking about you know all the things that he thought we wouldn't get and they, you know, or that, that even if we did get them, they wouldn't help. And it turns out so many of them did help and have made things better or at least more different and interesting with the exception of visual programming. Cause it's never going to happen. He said it was never going to happen and it hasn't happened. And that means it's never going to happen.